everybody, this is Brett. And I'm Christian. And you're listening to the Gilded Films Podcast. 2011 edition. Everybody and welcome back to yet another wonderful episode, or at least I hope it's going to be. It probably will be. It always is to the Gilda Films podcast. Feels like it's been a while as usual, but life life gets very busy. We're back. Um, I'm I don't know if I'm Christian anymore because last night in preparation for this, I was called the Karen of this podcast. <laughs> so for right now, I guess you can call me Karen. You can call me Christian. I don't care. It's a free gig. But we'll find out why it was called that. Anyway, here's Brett, as always. Hello, Brett. Hello, hello. And here is uh, my perpetrator, the one, the only, I guess, Tinker Zayler, soldier spy. It's Zay. Hello, my baby. Hello, my darling. Hello, my long-time gal. Zay, why did you hurt me? Because you accosted me. And then accuse yourself of being accosted, even though you are the perpetrator of accostment in our group chat. This is an ungodly podcast. <laughs> anyway, Brett, lead us into this. Lead us into this. Why are we? Here? <laughs> well, yes, we are here to talk about the year 2011, the Oscars of that year. A year in which there were nine nominees. So we've got a big episode ahead of us. I really enjoyed doing these ones where we were all not only alive, but aware of the Oscars and likely watched them. I know I watched them. Chris, I know you watched them. Zay, did you watch these Oscars when they happened? So what's funny is this was the second Oscars I'd ever seen, but it was the first one that I had actually watched some of the movies in preparation for because my library has some of them on DVD prior to the telecast. Like what? Well, they had Midnight in Paris, which went way over my head. And there was also Moneyball, which I absolutely had no idea was happening. (laughs) Um, I don't know if I saw The Help before. I know I saw The Help around that time, but I don't know if it was available or... I know I didn't see it in the theater. Because I don't even think we got the help in my theater, which is insane to think about. Interesting. And I saw the Best Picture Marathon that year. This is true. I didn't do the the 24 hours, but I did the two weekend thing, and that was fun. And I have memories, so we're going to go through all of them. (laughs) Yeah, I'm very excited for that. I'm interested to hear those stories. Yeah, I, I was pretty similar. This was not, I hadn't seen most, I think I'd seen like three of the movies that were nominated when these happened, but it was the first year I started like getting into it. I always attribute that to the next year because that's where I was really, really into it. But this is where it kind of began for me. So anyway, uh, these Oscars occurred on February 26, 2012. Of course, we have our winners. The big winner of the night was The Artist. It won Best Picture, and it became the second silent film 
not completely silent, but considered a silent film to win Best Picture after the very first, which was Wings, which we've also talked about in this podcast. Um, it was also the first black and white winner since Schindler's List, which Schindler's List isn't completely black and white, but the artist isn't completely silent either. So it kind of, you take it both ways. Um, best director went to Michelle Hazanavicius. Good I looked for it up you. before. Was that right? I looked up before and I still feel like I butchered it. But... I think that's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for the artist, um, that is his only director nomination to date. I really haven't heard much of what he's done since then, so that might be interesting to get into. Uh, Best Actress went to Meryl Streep. It was her third win. I would say probably her most least liked win by most people. Uh, Her 17th nomination, obviously she's had more since then, and she became the fifth performer to win three or more acting Oscars. Christian was there. Christian, first-hand account. I've got to experience a Meryl Streep victory in my life. <laughs> That's true. It is good for that, I guess. Um, best actor went to Jean Dujardin for The Artist. Um, his only nomination to date. Also the first and only French actor to win Best Actor. Um, and I don't think there's ever been to win Supporting Actor either. So Best Supporting Actress went to Octavia Spencer for The Help. That was her first nomination. She's had two more since then. Best Supporting Actor went to Christopher Plummer for Beginners. Um, That was his second nomination. Big deal because he was the oldest actor to win a competitive Oscar until Anthony Hopkins in The Father. Best Adapted Screenplay went to The Descendants. And Best Original Screenplay went to Midnight in Paris, yikes, uh, Woody La- Allen's last win from the Academy so far, hopefully. You say yikes ever. even though you like the movie, Brett. I do like the movie. I do. Like, I would not give it original screenplay, but we'll get there. I think we all like the movie, but we'll see. Spoiler alert. Uh, some other facts about the ceremony. The most wins went to the artist and Hugo with five each. Hugo won a bunch of technical awards that we'll get into. Uh, Hugo also led in nominations with 11. Billy Crystal hosted the Oscars for the ninth time, and at this point, it's the last time he's hosted so far. It was originally supposed to be Eddie Murphy, but he resigned after producer Brett Ratner made some sexist and homophobic remarks on his radio show. I know. Yeah, always a Brett. Uh, and subsequently stepped down as the producer of the ceremony. Afterwards, there was an online petition uh, that was probably started by Christian to have the Muppets replace Murphy as host of the ceremony. Christian, look, is that accurate? Look, I discovered that the only time Brett has ever watched a Muppets movie is if I told him to or if it was part of this show. He doesn't watch them just by himself naturally. There's a conspiracy afoot, and I'm there to find it. Lady Gaga, trying to find January 5th, 6th, whatever stuff. I'm trying to find this. Open since, up you've a- known, since you've known me, at least. That's I've seen a couple beforehand. But mm-hmm. I'm going to say something that I've been holding on to this whole time. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, Christian, when you nominated Miss Piggy to win Best Actress, Brett was trying to um, say that. What? I nominated her too. No. That's BS. No, no. I I know the truth. 
you did that to to cover up what you were doing behind the scenes. You were trying to implement rules into this (laughs) podcast that we could not, nor could we ever again nominate puppets or puppet adjacent folks. (laughs) And I'm going to let the internet know we can't hold on to this any longer. What Release is the documents. What is, Release what is the documents. <laughs> <laughs> you know, marionettes. I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> is that so? We're talking like the baby in a net. Is that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Baby in net. Okay. Christian, shh, you're letting him win. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, baby and that. Okay, keep going. <laughs> so this year there were 39.46 million viewers, which today, as we always say, would be amazing. At the time, it was considered a poor decline in viewership. Um, this was the first year that Best Picture featured between five and ten nominees that received at least 5% of the number one votes rather than having a set five or ten. Um it was also the first year that there could be four or five animated feature film nominees rather than just three. Um, neither of the two, that's right, two nominated original songs were performed live, but there was a performance by Cirque du Soleil um, that was dedicated to movie memories. Um, and Christian says, it's not like the songs were good anyway, TBH. I mean, they Manor Muppet is it's fine. I think it's but fine. Yeah. Life's a happy song is pretty good. That's fair. It's not it's not the one I would pick. I mean, and the Rio song is also fine, but like I don't remember. Honestly, me, me Party is the one I would have nominated. I'm having a me party. <laughs> it's a good song. Brett We're gonna get it. to it. We're going to get to a movie later that I was kind of surprised did not get an original song nomination. But Cole Porter was not eligible. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, honorary Oscars that year went to James Earl Jones and makeup artist Dick Smith and Oprah Winfrey also won a humanitarian award that year. And boy, does she ever tell you she's an Oscar winner nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair. Should have won in 1985, but they can go back and listen to that. Disagree. But anyway, uh, any other thoughts just on the general ceremony before we dive into these nine movies that were nominated? Let's take you back many years ago. All right. I'm in 11th grade again. (laughs) I'm a senior (laughs) high school. Yep, 11th grade here as well. And up first is uh, you, Tinker. <laughs> the first film we have on the, the docket of films nominated in 2011 for Best Picture. Um, in alphabetical order, not counting the winner, we have Alexander Payne's film, The Descendants. A film I knew nothing about going in. And then immediately they're like, here's George Clooney. He's half Hawaiian. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, all right. Everyone's... 
Emma Stone's inspiration for Aloha. <laughs> I literally thought this was going to be Aloha. Um, but no, it's about George Clooney. He He's descendant, hence the title, of like Hawaiian slash colonizer royalty. Um, and he's now like in charge of like his family's estate. And he's like, has the option to sell the property that his family has left, um, either to like anyone local or just like business, like uh, land development people. Um, but at the same time, wouldn't you guess his wife is in a coma? Random. Um, and it's basically about him also being a father and his descendants, his children, um, Shailene Woodley, and that one kid that I don't think acts anymore. Uh, whatever. She's not important. She is important. <laughs> but <laughs> um, So basically it's the story of George Clooney then seeking out the man his wife cheated on him with she's still in a coma she and he has to like deal with the fact that they're now taking her off life support she's probably gonna die he has to deal with that the fact that he'll never get closure with this woman and his like journey to like deal with all this and also figure out if he needs to sell this land or not i think that's the i'm not forgetting anything about okay that's, that's pretty much it so yeah, and going into this, this is based on a book written by a Hawaiian woman. Um, I didn't, I didn't get the chance to read the book. I didn't really seek it out. This movie did not give me much to do with. But I, I don't know to what extent because it's like he's. I looked at the Wikipedia entry anyway, and it seems like he's definitely like a white presenting man in the book, because regardless, his like great ancestor was like queen of hawaii and that and she married a guy who sailed from somewhere it was like a missionary a missionary yeah. that's it yeah. so that that in itself that could be great like um commentary there of just you know white people's history in Hawaii and how that's like part of it but this movie is not really interested in that so much and it's really like every time George Clooney talks about his Hawaiian heritage where I'm like okay but you need to if you gotta have George Clooney doing this and you're gonna make it like he's a, a white man George Clooney is a white man but white presenting character to keep coming back to this I need you to care about it a little more so it's not so like weird to me however i think saying that i the movie that i like is the one about his wife in a coma and he's trying to figure out all these complexities of the relationship with her and all the complexities he has with the relationship with his kids and like complicated relationships with her side of the family and all that i think all of that is really good and I think George Clooney sells that. It's just having, like, I don't think Alexander Payne, he, he wrote it, right? Like the, mm -hmm. yeah. 
him adapting the book, he wasn't as interested in all of the his like literally the namesake of the movie descendancy. But I'm like I don't know. I don't it's very muddled in there where I'm like, I really like the center of this. But once you have all this clutter around it, I don't I don't care. Because it takes me out immediately. Um, that being said, Judy Greer plays the wife of the other man. Um, and she gives like one of my favorite performances. She definitely has a very Oscar y moment, but my favorites are like the really quiet moment she has. Um yeah, I think that's it. I mean, I texted y'all once the movie started because I was like, what is this? What are we doing here? Because I really thought it was Aloha. Um, thankfully, it was more nuanced than all of that. And there was no like weird rocket subplot. But um, yeah, I I liked it more than I thought I was from the first five minutes. Oh, that was another thing. George Clooney's narration over it horrendous he does not know we don't need it i don't it just it just sounds like he's reading from the book that's that's what kills me and that it's that no all right i think i'm thinking good i think that's all i have to say my memories of this is i remember seeing the commercial for it on like tv i think it was going to be a pure comedy and then when i went to go see it Like in January, and it's not a pure comedy at all. And they really pushed that fucking running scene. So I've been like up and down with this. I mean, I think it's fine. I agree with like most of what you said. And it's funny because, again, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm a Hawaiian descendant. And then Bo Bridges is like your cousin. And he's the most white man you could probably think of to be your cousin trying to get this family land. And all these white presenting people being like, oh, what are we going to do with this land? I guess we're going to sell it to the corporate people on the mainland. It's like, whatever. I don't care. And Shailene Woodley is, you know, she's not eating clay in this movie or anything. But I don't know. There's one scene that pisses me off the most. And when she's like calling and she's like, mahalo. And I'm like, shut up. You are not. And then like the whole like my friends on the mainland, the big like, what does that even mean? I'm not from Hawaii. I don't know what this means, sir. Did you move here from like California or something? Because you're clearly not a descendant. But that's a whole other thing. Anyway, it's fine. I'm not like a huge fan of it. It's whatever. Also, it's interesting to think that the guy who plays the dean on the show Community is like the co-writer of this thing because... Yeah, and he's hilarious, and he imitated Angelina Jolie that year when they won, because this is the year for Infamous Leg out of the Slit of oh, thing. that's right. And he was pretty pissed off about that, and it's like, oh, shit. I don't know. Um, and then Nat Faxon, also like a co-writer, and I know him just by, like, that guy in, like, movies and TV shows and stuff. Hmm. So, I don't know. It's fine. I'm not a huge fan. I weirdly push myself to watch this time and time again. It's not like an unwatchable movie. It's a movie that at the end of it, it's like, do I care? No. So that's a good segue into my first thought, which is actually just a question for Christian. Uh, how many times have you seen this movie? Because like I looked at your letterbox reviews and your first from like 2013 was like, I've seen this four times and I still don't get it. <laughs> okay. So that means... <laughs> That means movie theaters, when it was wide released, 
the best picture marathon. Pretty sure when the DVD came out, because we showed family members it, because we're like, ooh, the greatest thing. Oh. The 2013, I'm pretty sure at one point, yes. There's Toby no and one I watched in there. Yeah. It. Toby and I watched it for the his completion thing. And then this. So this is like six. Wow. That's a, yeah. And still, I'm like, and that makes total sense. I'm right. just like, wow, you've seen this like six times. Right. And still, so it's interesting. Like, like the only time that I watched it just to watch it was that 2013 one, probably. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree a lot on on what you all have had to say. Um, I, I yeah, I like the big picture ideas. I I like the idea of a movie that might. Uh, go over things about like land ownership in Hawaii and whatnot, if it were to do it correctly. Uh, and I like this story about a man and his wife being in a coma and him knowing pretty early on that she is not going to make it. And then finding out that she was having an affair. That's a really interesting scenario to me. Um, but it is, it's in the details where it just gets muddled and there are things that it could have done better. Um, largely with, Clooney being this white character and the film not really getting into that. I think what makes it almost the worst for me in that respect is that I know it was based on a book, but it feels like Payne just chose to include this stuff about his ancestors just to like check a box. Like, no, no, he's got some Hawaiian in him. He's got a little bit. Okay. So we're good. No, you're, you're really not good. Um, so yeah, it's very weird. Um, yeah, I do enjoy Clooney in this. I agree with you, Zayda. I think he's best when he is with his daughters and when he is confronting the things about his wife. I forgot I to tell say you. That, I forgot to say that he's in my list of like overrated actors because he doesn't have a range for me. I've seen him play himself in every single movie. I think that's fair. <laughs> like, I, I don't disagree. I don't disagree. Um, I've never seen his Oscar win. I um, I have. I have. It was during the first season of Roseanne. I think he's... <laughs> okay, I'll give you that. Oh, and the Golden Bills episode he's in, too. Yeah. I don't know. I think... I mean, he was on TV. I never watched ER. Yeah, he no? was in ER. Okay. No, I'm... I don't know. I feel like TV is what he represents to me more than movie star. Because the only thing I can really gravitate towards his gravity and i think he's in that movie just long enough so yeah. I mean, when she lets him go i'm like bye <laughs> go on. to me he's just danny ocean like he shows up in the movie he's like oh danny ocean has two daughters in this one like i don't know i'm but... sure there's some 45 year old listening to this podcast screaming at us. <laughs> <laughs> uh but yeah i Zay, the thing you mentioned about the voiceover, the voiceover is awful. Um, one of the worst decisions that Payne made for this movie, not just because it's dry, but like it just, yeah, it just seems so pointless. It's like, this is the definition of the film showing uh, or telling us instead of showing us. And it also like just completely disappears halfway through the movie for no reason whatsoever. Like I noticed towards the end, I'm like, I haven't heard that voiceover in a long time. And like, I'm glad I haven't. <laughs> And then, yeah, it comes back. It's like, I'm glad I haven't, but I'm also like, that's kind of just kind of weird. Because um, it definitely this... sounds like it wasn't in the movie, and then 
somebody was like, we need to put that in there. And they had to call George Clooney in for a day. And yeah. he was just like, blah, 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 blah. he moved on. He moved on at that point. Um, but this is the second time I've seen this. The first was in uh, probably early 2012, actually, when I first saw it. And the first time I saw it, I'm just like try- imagining my face when we hear that his wife was with this other man and we're wondering, oh, who is this guy? And then we see Matthew Lillard's face. And to me, in 2011, that meant she was hooking up with Shaggy. Like, <laughs> that was just... <laughs> I mean... He's hot. I get it. Nothing about Matthew Lillard. It was just surprising to me at the time. It was a funny <laughs> reveal because he just shows up on like a sign on the street. Mm-hmm. But no, there are some really good moments. Um, I really like Robert Forster in this as well. He's like, this is an example of like a really good like five minute performance to me from Robert Forster as well as Judy Greer. Um, so I think the cast does kind of round out in that way. But I definitely wouldn't put it as like, one of the great ensembles of the year personally this is, this is crazy this one like the golden globe for drama that's that's the thing to me like this the artist was always gonna win like dominant but like there's a possibility that if if there is no the artist that this might have won best picture which is wild to me i don't it's weird it's also wild to me that this movie made $177 million. You're welcome. <laughs> I got like, how? Like, that would never happen today, but very interesting to me. I was thinking about this where I'm like, yes, this year, like, I noticed like the box office was significantly successful for a lot of them. Far for yeah. Hugo, even though Hugo's delightful, it was just expensive as fuck. Um, I guess, yeah. Anyway, um, just the fact that it this feels like an Oscar list of films that people have a problem with the Oscar films not being as relatable, like to your standard audience. Because if you go back to that year, I don't, other than the help, I don't know how many of those movies people are going out to watch on a right like uh like if you went up to a random person be like what do you think of these movies yeah so i think this is like a textbook like this is like wait you say that and yet remind me of my war horse christmas day story (laughs) (laughs) i forgot the horse girls were out (laughs) (laughs) They said that was that was their Black Panther. All all the kins went and saw that movie. You know, don't don't discount that. So, uh, we'll we'll probably formal formalize that as we go down the list. Yes, Brett, I think I will do what it was nominated for. You're so good at it. Yes, <laughs> take it away. Um, it won one Oscar for adapted screenplay for whatever reason. It's not a terrible win. It's just not. Not a good one. Not a good one. Um, it had four additional noms for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, George Clooney, and Best Film Editing. I guess it had all those things. I remember <laughs> when there was uproar that Shailene didn't get a nomination. I'm like... I do too. Or what? Really? I, I agree. I. And you know what? After that, she started eating clay. 
What does that mean? What are you talking about? She was like, she said that she ate clay on Jimmy, the, one of the Jimmies. <laughs> and then she dated the football man with the eyes who was at the Tonys. And he was like, what am I doing here? <laughs> this was pre-me knowing who she was. I didn't know who she was until uh, the, the cancer movie. Fault nurse. Oh, the fault nurse. <laughs> <laughs> What? It's okay. Well, speaking of no. Any last thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any. I I think you know it's good. It's good. It's just yeah. It's an interesting best picture nominee. It's. I definitely think it's a movie to sit and watch with your parents if your parents are like, let's watch a movie, and it's like not too. I don't know. Offensive yeah. to. Speaking of a speaking of a non-offensive movie you could watch with your parents, I think that's a great segue in turn. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I drew the short straw, so I've got our next movie. Um, and it is it's everybody's favorite from this year, extremely loud and incredibly close. Uh, directed by Stephen Daldry. So this one stars Thomas Horn. Who cares? I. <laughs> true as oscar shell who is he's a nine-year-old living in new york city in the year after the 9-11 attacks um so many have claimed that the character that horn's character has autism um but the film like really suspiciously tries to bounce around the idea by like stating that quote unquote the results were inconclusive um which is kind of a weird moment in the movie but I don't know. They try to explain what autism is in a very like problematic metaphor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know if the book like goes in a different direction with it, but um, the film seems to make trying to make like that a major influence on his behavior without really going into it in a good way. Um, His father, who's played by Tom Hanks, was killed in the nine eleven attacks, and he was this major presence in Oscar's life. He would send Oscar on these little trips through Central Park to try to find clues that he would leave about a quote unquote lost <laughs> sixth borough. Uh, Christian's holding up a sign that says who cares and you know, fair. Um, but Oscar believes that his father left more clues about this before his death due to a key that he finds in a vase that his dad bought. Um, so the film is mostly write about, all of this down. I did. That I sounded, had no other choice. That sounded I wonderfully choice. scripted. You did a good job on that. Okay. Thank you. It Thank flowed you. well. I was like, oh, professional here. I had to, or else I wouldn't know how to how to describe it. <laughs> but it it's mostly him like traveling around the city. He meets a lot of different people with the the last name of Black because he saw Black on I don't even remember. Was it like a an envelope or something? Um but he goes around, he's like randomly asking about his dad as if he can find answers. And eventually he's joined by a mute old man who lives in his grandma's spare room, um, who's played by Max von Sydow. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for this. All this going on, he also has this like strained relationship with his mom, who's played by Sandra Bullock. Um, bless her soul. It, the, the film kind of tries to shoehorn that relationship into the narrative alongside everything else that's going on. But no, I, the film sucks. I, you know, we're all kind of just hinting at it. it. It sucks. I think it's really emotionally manipulative it's really interesting that this movie just and the book just chooses to be about 9 11 
um, because if Tom Hanks's character had died any other way, the rest of the story wouldn't change at all. Like if he had just got hit by a bus or something, none of the rest of the story changes. But for some reason, they try to make it about 9-11 and try to make that like a huge plot point. What do you mean? Without 9-11, we wouldn't have that image of Tom Hanks falling (laughs) from the building and that weird ass, terrible CGI shot. This is true. How could we live without that? But yes, I, yeah, it feels very like a really poor way to like kind of shoehorn that in. And it never really says anything about it. There's like one scene where they show people like leaving candles and flowers and that's like all they do with it. Um, the movie is also just kind of like downright illogical with the plot. Um, I, I don't understand like how this kid does this. It, it, doesn't feel very thought out and i'm just gonna spoil it i really don't care if we spoil this movie we find out that bullock's character has been one step ahead of this kid the whole time and is also going around to all these people and talking to them about her son who is coming while apparently working a full-time job and i'm like how did she have time to do this that makes no fucking sense um but yeah i it's it's I don't know. It's just bad. I, I think the acting is really poor. Um, Sandra Bullock is innocent, but you know she's not giving great things to do. Von Sydow is just a really strange nomination. I'm not saying he's bad. I just like don't know what there is there. Like truly, anybody could have done that role. It kind of feels like they're just handing out to a legend type of thing. Um, it doesn't really give us any good reasons to follow this character or make him that likable at all. Um. And I just find it really interesting that I remember at the time, and I was reading up on this in preparation for this as well, but like, although the Oscars have a really long history of awarding or nominating movies that either haven't aged well or that many people don't like, it was really interesting at this time for this movie to have such low critical acclaim, like awful scores on Rotten Tomato and Metacritic. Writers would write about that and say, like, how did this get a Best Picture nominee? But now that happens all the time. Uh, you look at like Bohemian Rhapsody, Vice, Don't Look Up. Like, doesn't matter what critics thought about it. Um, that certainly was the case with this movie. So very strange. Feels like the nomination was kind of bought. Um, I didn't look. Was Weinstein behind this? No, but Scott Rudin was. Uh, there you go. There you go. So I obviously hated it. Um, y'all go ahead. I would like to preface that I don't think this got a huge applause at the marathon that I went to. <laughs> I got a smattering, but I knew I, I see. Okay. I never knew what this movie was until it was nominated. And when it was over, I hated it. I hated halfway through because when he starts yelling and you know, this, the kid being himself, I hated him. Okay. You look at its Wikipedia page of awards. It's not nominated for much. So how the fuck did it get into there? Probably Scott Rudin another Weinstein my biggest I mean I agree with everything Brett said I also think Tom Hanks is manipulative to this poor bastard because like (laughs) for him to care so much about this key thing like my god like okay but the biggest crime is in 2010 uh at the Critics Choice Award Haley Haley Steinfeld wins best young actor actress for True Grit in 2012 Quavenjane Wallace wins for Beast of the Southern Wild. In the middle there, okay, we got Thomas Horn winning against 
Asa Butterfield and Hugo in Hugo, the titular role. Elle Fanning in Super 8. I don't remember that movie. Ezra Miller, but we need to talk about Kevin. Fine film, fine film. Sheer Sharon and Hannah, again, don't remember it. And even the clay woman herself, Shailene Woodley <laughs> in The Descendants. And they give it to this kid. This kid who's annoying, who's in my mind, very disrespectful to whatever they're trying to do here because he's like, I'm not autistic. And yet they make him with the tendencies, with every sort of inflection. But he's like, yeah, no, I'm just like a normal, I'm a normal kid in 9-11 world. Like, I don't know. I feel bad for everybody else. How does the mom work a nine to five in New York fucking city? And after her husband dies, she's still able to pay the rent in New York city. <laughs> okay. And the kid ain't going to school. I mean, they're going to help hold him back. All right. It's, it's a terrible film. I'm sorry. It's a terrible film. That's all I have to say. And Viola Davis is in this. And John Goodman is in this. They got two movies this year that they're in, nominated for Best Picture. Good for them and all. But this this ain't it. Go. I was, I was going to say if anyone mentioned Viola Davis and that scene that made me very uncomfortable where we first see her. And she's, I guess we're, I don't know if it's assumed that she's like a being abused by her husband or they're just like having a very like the yeah. relationship's just really rocky right now I can't tell which it is I don't it, the movie's too like which is also I mean like her husband is what Jeffrey Wright in this mm -hmm. and I don't see him as a guy to be like an abusive person especially with how his character is like yeah since his character becomes so important later in the last third of the movie um but it's just very weird to see a grown woman a grown black woman sitting on the stairs weeping and this little white boy comes up and like can i kiss you and i'm just like what and the thing is like you would do the same thing <laughs> and i just like back to the autism thing i'm like do you think they were just like throw that in the movie so no one thinks we're trying to depict autism in this way yeah I, I really think that was just like uh i don't know like a really weird thing and i'm just like whatever i guess uh, that's like maybe only 10th worst thing about this movie um <laughs> it's just it's insane to think about this movie like being like best picture nominated especially with like all the the twists at the end because we didn't even get where was a dream the whole time <laughs> um i mean we didn't reveal the twist on literally not max Ronso's uh character on oh, what about him the, being his grandpa like, yeah yeah what? <laughs> Christian! <laughs> You've seen this movie 20 times! <laughs> Wait, what? No. <laughs> In fairness, really? Christian, was a, Christian was asleep by that point. Okay, so... <laughs> I didn't get that. Conscious during... You know what? 
All right. In in the in the descendants, her they say her accident is in a like a speedboat or whatever. It's actually she was watching extremely close. <laughs> <laughs> they just couldn't wake her up after that. Um <laughs> but yeah, I and then just the scenes where like suddenly he's just yelling slurs at John Goodman in <laughs> <laughs> in the fucking, when he my ball sack. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, where does this come from? Why does he suddenly become the like he was already unlikable? Now he just becomes an asshole. That's, that's post 9 11. Killing watching South Park. I was like, nothing matters. Um, will, there will never there will never be a comprehensive 9 11 film. I mean, I just don't think. I don't understand why at this point, because World War II movies making during World War II, perfectly fine. 9-11, I mean, I'm not saying like there should be because there's documentaries out there that are great and everything. Mm -hmm. But movies like this that include 9-11 are a major point of it. They end up being like. Because they're so concerned about being like pro-America. Like, you know, it's a better 9-11 movie than this. 9-11 with Whoopi Goldberg. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? Make it a triple feature with that um, Robert Pattinson movie. Remember me. Oh my gosh! I don't, I don't even. Know <laughs> That's a nine eleven movie. The, the, the <laughs> really. I will spoil this because everybody oh, knows no. this. The very twist is he's looking out the building, and it's like September eleventh, two thousand one. He's looking at the building, and it pans out, and he's in the tower. Oh my god! No, isn't it? Isn't it like his sister's in the tower? No, it's him. It's Robert Pattinson. He's oh, waiting on his sister in the tower. Okay. I've not seen the movie, but I've seen the ending. I could I couldn't remember which way it was. But yeah. Lord. And like the whole time you don't know. <laughs> Somehow they don't make it clear what the date is until that very <laughs> Jeez. Oh. So yeah, 9-11 cinema. Gotta love it. <laughs> Brett, what was this nominated for? <laughs> What's the other interesting thing? Like, it was nominated for two awards: Best Picture and Best Supporting Actor. Like, not even a screenplay thrown in. Like, which is, I'm not saying it should have been, but like, how did this get in? That's the thing that is shocking about this is that this had to, like five percent of the Academy had to say this is the best movie of 2011, the best. I, I elderly I, white people. True. I can't true, see what they would even even that audience. I don't just, yeah, just I, think at this time, Mickey Rooney. Okay. He probably enjoyed this film. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. This movie didn't even make money. Like it made just enough. But that's the thing though, too, is that most of the movies nominated this year appealed to that crowd. Like that crowd would also probably love Moneyball and would probably love The Descendants and would probably love The Artist. And so, like... Okay, but here's the thing. And it's like, not like it was their movie, you know? Here's the thing, though, you've said in three of them. Moneyball, Brad Pitt, Descendants, George Clooney, this one, Tom Hanks, and Sandra Bullock. True. True. That stars. That's true. And they were, like, the center of the marketing, too. Like, everybody who went to go see this, I think, was expecting, like, a Tom Hanks, Sandra Bullock-led film. But... Oh, okay. Have we had enough of this movie? Yes. Yeah. Never want to talk I about mean, it again. 
<laughs> it's pretty bad, but like, if y'all want to like get some friends together, watch a really bad movie to laugh about. This is this is pretty good up there. Oh I'm just God. saying, like, there's like some like like Cats, for example, where people are like way in the like forefront. They're like, this could be like an Oscar-y sort of thing. And I'm like, all those movies really do have a chance when you look at shit like this. It's true. You just talk to the right people and put enough money in their pockets. All right. Christian, I believe you have our next one, so take us away. I do. This is going to be a controversial talk, possibly. And um, here to introduce it is our good friend, Paula D. Oh, no. (laughs) Elizabeth Town got nominated? (laughs) Oh, no god i remember when that came out she had a whole special on it anyway no this is uh this is uh, this is the help um it's a complex film it's one that screams in the end of it white savior but in the end of it in my heart screams it's a decent film i like it a lot but i don't know where to start with this one so we'll start with the white people um you are on a roll tonight <laughs> I, I got hey i got coke zero in me i guess and i got a really <laughs> key so we're gonna speed this up <laughs> all right so uh after this i might skedaddle for like a hot second because i go to the bathroom but anyway we got uh emma stone is in this Ooh. <laughs> She plays a white girl in the South in the 60s. Uh-oh. Her name is Eugenia Phelan, a.k.a. Skeeter. And she is coming back from college, and she wants to, you know, make a name for herself. She doesn't want to just be like a normal housewife like everybody else in her community. And in her community, you have people like Hilly Walters Holbrook, who used to be her friend. And she's somewhat of her friend, played by Bryce Dallas Howard. Really? Is this like the, this is like the first big movie that Bryce Dallas Howard was in that I know of. I mean, she, you know, she's a small thing in the Grinch where you can barely see her, but this is where like, she's made a name for herself. Anyway, um, but again, this is set in the South in the 60s. And if we know anything about American history, it was not a good time for the African-Americans. And in we come Abilene Clark, played by Viola Davis. She is uh, the titular part of the help, the housekeeper of, uh, let me just make sure I get these names right, Elizabeth Lee Foltz, played by Anna O'Reilly. She basically does everything that Elizabeth does not do in the house, which is most of everything, including raising Elizabeth's baby. Um, Skeeter kind of plots this idea of, I want to write a book and get myself published. Well, why don't I interview these women in the background, these maids, these the help, essentially, duh. Um, so that's kind of where the complex part of it comes in, because if you think about this, this is a story about a white woman writing the stories and the livelihoods of these black women. Um, another one of Abilene's friends is Minnie Jackson, played by the wonderful in this film, Octavia Spencer, who gets herself in a lot of hot water with Hilly, um, is essentially let go and meets Again, a complex character when you really think about it at the heart of it. Celia Foote, played by Jessica Chastain. And this is like, you know, the big Jessica Chastain moments. Like, hey, who's this woman? She's great. Um, But again, along with Minnie and Abilene, Skeeter is able to write this book. They 
get more of the workers in the town, the help in the town, the housekeepers in the town to participate in this. And anonymously, this book is published and it changes. I mean, it just changes really the perception of everything. It shows how still racist in the 60s the world could be. And again, it's a complex situation because since it's Skeeter as a white woman telling all of these stories to black women who don't have a voice and because the book is published anonymously still don't have a voice, there's a lot of questions there as well. I personally really like this movie and I think it's because the first time I saw it, I loved it. Uh, I will say that I agree there's some like, it, it does feel... It does feel like obviously this probably couldn't be made too much today. Uh, the book itself is written by a white woman, which is something else right there in and of itself. Viola Davis has gone on to record saying she doesn't like this in retrospect. I mean, it helped. I think personally it helped her be the Viola Davis that we know today, who's a wonderful actress. She was working way before this, but this is like when I knew who she was. This really rocketed Octavia Spencer from being a one-bit character in movies to being Academy Award winner Octavia Spencer. And it's amazing how many movies you watch of her that, like Spider-Man, she's the one who signs Spider-Man up to fight in the cage match. And now look at her here. She's mom. Okay. Literally the year before, she was a nurse in Rob Zombie's Halloween too. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That like background character like oh it's hey i've seen her before and now i see her and i'm like hey it's octavia spencer so i again i really like this film it has a really good cast also cecily tyson is in it sissy spacek is in it the late leslie jordan is in it mary steenbergen is in in it um anjanae ellis is in it now she's known to me now thanks to this and now king richard um i totally forgot david Oyelowo was in this too mm-hmm. uh, me too yeah I really like it. I understand it's complex. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna shit on YouTube because I've read your reviews of it. So I kind of understand. I'm a problematic person, maybe. I don't know. I, don't know. I, like, I understand, I understand and I agree, but it's just because I've seen this so many times and the first time that I really liked it, and during that marathon it was well received too. But no, you're problematic for saying you read my review, but you didn't like it. You don't like my stuff. <laughs> I try to. I try to, damn it. Anyway. Um, I have I, suffered. I have suffered every day of my life. I, um, so going back, I, this is a movie I was hesitant to rewatch for the longest time because I hadn't watched it since 2016, May 2016. And I gave it a four and a half star review then. Um, it's always been a movie that I valued very. It was like at one time it would easily like be my top twenty five movies. At one point, I even read the book. I loved the book. You know, growing up very white in a very white, heavy hometown, slowly learning new things, interacting with new people reading other things, especially criticisms of this film that I just assumed was beloved by every single person under the sun when it came out. Because it was a phenomenon when it came out. Like, people in my high school were quoting it. 
And what were they quoting? You know, you was kind. Like, you was smart. That, that yeah. especially. Um, and which You're is going with Hilly. <laughs> <laughs> which is part of an issue where like it definitely like turned into like a character caricature sort of thing um because it, it while it plays to historical accuracy to some degree at least with characterization i get it but i'm also like i don't know it's very obvious the the things that were added in like that that just feel like they did not age well immediately and I think it's mostly that the film wants to talk about racism but also be a very entertaining movie and if you have both you can't have complex um, discussions about that in which Skeeter wants to be seen as this heroic figure but we don't question her relationships with all this. Why is she still friends with um, Hilly? And why is she still friends with all these racist women if she really believes in this cause? Um, why, why, why is her nanny seen as some sort of like angel-like figure who sacrificed her entire life to raise Emma Stone's character but that's not seen as a problem until it's her parents who fire her. Um, and so it's just like, I wish like her character especially like came to terms with, oh, I'm also part of the problem. I think that would have hit home just a little bit harder. Um, but I, th and then like, yeah, the Jessica Chastain character, I think that's also like, not all white people are bad. We'll hire some help too, and it's okay because we can eat at our table. And I'm like, yeah, but like that's not that's not very accurate to show the depictions of things back then because 99% of them had a very bad time. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't think it's essential to add something like that. Um, on top of just like I don't know. Yeah, I. So I think what makes it work, though, and that's what I'm like frustrated with, but at the same time, I'm just coming to terms with, is um, reading both Viola Davis's uh, memoir and Leslie Jordan's, they both talked about how working on the set itself was very lovely. Like, everyone there basically became like a little family. And that's why the dynamic of them, like, anytime they're acting together, it's really fucking good. That's why it's really palpable. Um that like and then like the movie is like really good to look at as well because the set decorations and the costumes just a lot of great colors popping out at all times so i think it like has that thing of just like looking at it like if you think about the script at all it starts to fall apart all fall apart immediately but i think because the dynamic of the acting and in the world that they are in as much as that world is not very historically accurate is what makes it work. And yeah, I think that's what I was like. And I mean, the fact that I watched it plenty of times and loved, loved watching it so many times that it's kind of ingrained into me to enjoy it. 
regardless of my complicated feelings toward that movie. Did you know I have the poster to this film framed? Yeah, I've seen it. <laughs> I won it at the marathon, okay? <laughs> yeah. I remember the question that I wanted for. What was the only what, what? It was like, what was the only silent film that won the best picture? And there I was in the very top of the theater. <laughs> <laughs> and then, wait a minute. Because there was another question that Maddie, our good friend Maddie, was there, right? That she answered and she got a poster of Angelina Jolie's Once Upon a Time in Anatola. <laughs> Does any of you know this movie? <laughs> I no. think I've heard of it, but I exactly. couldn't tell you anything I got, else. I got the help. She got the Anatolia. <laughs> they were like, we've got a bunch of posters we want to get rid of. <laughs> anyway, the help, Brett. No, yeah. I I was I was looking forward to rewatching this, but also like kind of nervous. Because I, I was the same way. Like to me, this was a five-star movie, you know, at one point. And I was afraid, like, oh, you know, I it's hard when like you got a movie that you really loved at one point and you're just concerned that you're just not going to like it. And, you know, even though there are a lot of issues with it and I'm at a point where I understand those issues more, much more than I did at that time, I still really like the movie. I think a lot of it, like you said, Zay, is just the performances are so good. Like the, the issues with the film don't take away from the fact that these actors with what they are given for the most part do an amazing job with it um viola davis is incredible i mean i just think she's terrific um just every time that she has something to say or that she has you know her big moments it's just delivered perfectly it feels so so personal and whatnot and she absolutely should have won best actress that year Full full disclosure, have not seen The Iron Lady. Don't care. Um, I will be astounded if it even approaches this performance. I mean, no, um, but it's like The Iron Lady. It's camp. <laughs> you want concessions. Oh, my God. Looking camp in the eye. I have but, to go. <laughs> but it's like you said, Christian. It's like there's the the layers of this cast, like there are people that I just forgot were in it that are just like, you see them and you're like, Oh my gosh, like Mary Steenbergen, um, Cecily Tyson, you know, has a very small role, but she's, like I said, even though parts of her narrative are problematic for that character and in, in the relation to Skeeter, it's heartbreaking. Um, the film, you know, it does hit emotional beats. Like it's hard for me to not get emotional at times. Um, but yeah, I, I think the issue is that it is too easily digestible. Not that awful stuff doesn't happen in the movie. I mean, there are terrible things that happen, very low points, but in addition to just being, or as a result of being made white, white people, it feels mostly made for a white audience. It's um, the green book scenario. The green book is a much better movie than green book. Um, but you know, yeah, it is a very similar scenario um, in that way. But, um, yeah, I, I just remember 
when it came out, I didn't really know what it was before it was released, but like it had this huge opening weekend. It made a ton of money, made over $200 million. And I remember it getting an A plus cinema score too, um, which is extremely rare, but it kind of gets into the idea that it's a little too easily digestible for the content that it's taking on. Um, so yeah, it, it totally makes sense to me why Viola Davis um, regrets starring in this movie. I saw even Bryce Dallas Howard regrets starring in this movie as well. Um, there are a lot of issues spe you know, with Skeeter specifically. I, the scene that comes to mind for me a lot is the scene where like with the almonds um, that, you know, their new maid doesn't know that she's allergic to almonds. And it's like, she gives it back. And it's like, Oh, but she asks nicely, you know, the rest of her family doesn't ask nicely, but at the same, she still didn't just fucking remove, you know, just take it and, you know, do things herself. But, um, so she's still very much a part of that system and I don't think the movie is aware of that. I think the movie leans too much into this idea that there are some bad eggs out there. Um, tries to get into the systemic part a little bit when it talks a bit about the loss, but even then that's mostly just to serve the rest of the plot. It's not really analyzing that a whole lot. So yeah, it's almost like if we get rid of, you know, the bad, the bad ones, you know, then everything's going to work out. I think too that because this is set in like the early 60s because you see a scene of the Kennedy assassination too it's like Skeeter coming out of college is almost too she's too early for things to come in the 60s because if this would have been set in like 68 I mean I don't know if she would have made a little bit more sense to okay she's like a radical person now living in the south with like dixiecrats who are no longer voting democrat they're voting republican and they're upset about things even more and you know the vietnam war is going on and everything and i mean they they try to do that too because she's watching some program where somebody is killed and everybody in the house is watching and her mom comes in and is like turn that off skater yeah it, the medgar awesome. ever scene yeah which I saw, like, in the book, it's not Skeeter who is, like, the impetus behind watching that. It's it's one of the Black characters. That's a very curious change. Speaking of problems, let's talk about Tate Taylor. <laughs> I just learned moments ago, white man, right? Um, director of Ma, best friends with Octavia Spencer and the author of this book, lives on a plantation... Yep, Mississippi. And I was like, okay, so I'm looking, and it's of course a hoity-toity article I found of Wyola, a Churchill plantation complex dating to the 1830s, including a doctor's office, commissary, former slave cabins, carriage house, and I'm like, hold up, there. <laughs> <laughs> go back, a commissary. But also the slave quarters. Like, that's weird to me. Okay. That's. Yeah. yeah that's, that's exactly why he's not someone, regardless of him being the wrong race to do something like this. The fact that he clearly. He doesn't yeah. live in the same. I don't, I don't like that man. I see he directed Get On Up. That's, that, that was his next film as well, which I didn't realize. So. He just okay. kind of made a career out of it. What's interesting is he has the help 
He has Get On Up, which has Viola in it. He has The Girl on the Train, which has Allison Janney. He has Ma with Octavia and Allison. He has Ava with Jessica Chastain. He has Breaking News in Yuba with Allison. I have no memory of Allison Janney being in The Girl on the Train. Oh, he has Pretty Ugly People before the help with Octavia. And he has Chicken Party with Octavia. And what is Chicken Party? And I do I want to know. <laughs> Allison Janney is all and Melissa McCarthy. I, wait a minute, I'm gonna see this. <laughs> <laughs> that took a turn. <laughs> anyway, what was this nominated for? Uh, well, it won for Octavia Spencer, uh, and it was nominated for picture, Viola for actress, and another supporting actress for Jessica Chastain. There you go, and I think it won SAG too for ensemble. Yes, yeah, yes. pretty sure. God damn it. I'm going to have to see his next movie. Something called Miss Macy and Gene Smart's playing the titular role. Oh. <laughs> That's it. That's all right. I got. <laughs> well, that, that is the help. It's a good one to have a discussion about. Are we ready to move on to our next one? We. Oui. All right. Well, Zay <laughs> is going to introduce a Martin Scorsese movie. Oh my god. It's my favorite of his movies, I think. Yeah, I think so. What about that time you told me it was Goodfellas? <laughs> and then you said that like Mean Streets was divine. And you said Casino was like the best experience you had ever like had. <laughs> and no, had, Wall Street was I had, I had the best I don't know where. I was. <laughs> anyway, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna write a cease and desist. <laughs> anyway, Hugo. Um, this is the one I I watched the furthest away from today, so I'm gonna do my best to recap. But basically, this boy is orphaned, um, and he moves in with his uncle, and his uncle's like, "Hey, you're gonna be the clock watcher." Watch the clock. Make sure nothing happens. Everyone needs to know what time it is. Um, they're in France. 1930s Paris. Um, he's got a notebook from his late father. <laughs> Christian's doing <laughs> charades right now to what I'm saying. Anyway, and so basically it's him looking in this notebook and trying to figure out the legacy his father's left behind to like have this last bit of any sort of connection he has in the world because he, his uncle and him definitely do not have anything like that. His uncle is very cold and it's just like, I'm stuck with you. Do what you want, you dirty little kid, just watch the clock. <laughs> Um, and that's when he meets uh, Chloe Grace Moretz's character and they start <laughs> they start going like doing kids things you know just running around the city finding things there's a a toy maker who uh, the boy has like stolen from in the past like have like little gadgets to make his own little contraptions um, there's a bookkeeper is the bookkeeper that's the one played by Christopher Lee? I, was, I loved seeing him 
Um, and then eventually he like goes and basic is like goes and meets um, her family. And that's when we're like, we get to learn that like her grandfather is um, George Millier. Basically, like they like they eventually find like the robot. <laughs> they find the robot um, that was um, uh, the father. Did the father design the robot? Yes, the, the automaton. Automaton, thank you. I'm I'm sorry. Great, I literally the, literally the end of June is when I watched this. <laughs> um so um George Millier played by Ben Kingsley. I thought he did a great, great job. And basically it's like them learning about him being a magician turned movie maker and how he literally brought magic to the screen. But now in his old age feels like none of that was worth it. It's all gone. He has no sense of that magic left. And so it's like the kids and him and all of them just like coming together, like finding one of his movies and experiencing all of that once again. And it's like Martin Scorsese's Martin Scorsese's like nerdiest film. Like just him talking about wow, aren't movies cool? Aren't they fun and magical and literal magic on the screen? And just him giving that tribute to like the first like movie magician who literally brought the magic to the screen. I think it's beautiful. I think this was definitely my, um, when did I watch this? Fun fact, this was like the Google store gave away things at Christmas time in like 2012 I imagine and this was like a movie I got to download for free and so I've just had it like in my iTunes for the last decade um and so that's how I watched this and I it had to be like more introduction to George Villiers because I had no idea who he was I mean I think I like knew the imagery of the moon from a trip to the moon of course but I didn't know someone was behind that I didn't know who was behind that um so yeah i think that's i don't know it's a very special movie in that way i think it understood it's like very amblin-esque i think of just a child's wonder and experiencing the world in a way after like coming from like like literally he's an orphan so he's like finding a family he's finding a purpose in the world I yeah, I think it's a very sentimental movie. I think it's a beautiful movie. It's got all the tarts on the sleeve, but I I like that about it. Um made no money because it was really fucking expensive. And it was as I think if I remember correctly, not very well like advertised because they were like really pushing that it was a kid's movie. Mm-hmm. Which it, it's 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 not that it's not. Like I think if you get the right kid, a kid would enjoy this movie. But I think it's a movie anyone could watch and really get into. But because it was so like, this is a movie for kids that I don't think many people over the age of 20 were seeking it out at the time. 
it was a super advertise on Nickelodeon because that's what I remember. Yep. Yeah. Um, I like it a lot. I mean, I think I like it a lot because it's about movies. It's not directly about the making of movies, but it's about where we came from in terms of where the cinema came from and the look of cinema and the language of cinema and, of course, the magic of cinema. As the local theaters say around here, enjoy the magic of the movies, um, which is weird to me because they seem so robotic when they say that. Um, but it's also, I mean, it's a nice film to look at, too. I think the CGI is done very well in this. There's a lot of it. I think. I think it's like his most used CGI in this. Um, but yeah, everything Zay said, I appreciate a lot. Um, my big thing with it when I saw it at the marathon is they were like, all right, this is your." it was the first one they showed of the day. And I had not seen it. I did not go see it in theaters until the marathon. And they're like, okay, enjoy it in 3D. And I'm like, wait, this front theater does not show 3D. They started it and it was blurry. And I'm like, wait a minute. And they're like, oh, oh, we're sorry. Hold on. They played it a second time and it was still blurry. And I'm like, they don't, they didn't even give us glasses. <laughs> and they showed it the third time and it worked this time. And I'm like, what? Do they need me? But yeah. So and actually, the other day when I was at Barnes and Noble, I held the new Arrow uh, 4K Blu ray contraption in my hands. And it's on 50% off sale this month. So I might go buy it because I didn't buy it. And I might go get it. So nice. It's the only Scorsese movie you can show the kitties. That's that's a lie. You can show them like Cape Fear or something. It'll be fun. You can show Passion of the Christ. It's Last Temptation of Christ. Nope. Nope. You saw Passion of the Christ. It's in the book. <laughs> oh, I saw that shit when I was eight. So why well, I don't else? <laughs> and this is a Scorsese movie. So Brett likes it. All right. Moving on. True, true. I feel like you like most of his movies as well, but I'll take that. Um, but no, it, it is a Scorsese movie, but it does it it definitely feels different. It definitely has you you know some of his style for sure and his strong direction. But you know, Scorsese is someone who a lot of people like to go online and say that he only ever does one genre, um, which is not true. But that is never more untrue than with a movie like this. Um, yeah. The point about this being like marketed as intended for kids is really interesting because I don't know if it's a movie that most kids would particularly like love. I can't say for sure. Um, I've seen it twice when I was like 19 and now, so I can't really answer that. I was interested that that's how they approached it. I do remember it being talked about how this was like Scorsese's movie that he made for Francesca, um, who was like one of film Twitter's favorite Nepo babies now. Um, but that's kind of an interesting concept. But I do enjoy, I do like really like that, despite that the fact that he took this hard turn into something else, the Oscars still mostly, you know, ate it up and really appreciated it because um, it is a really great movie. Um, Marty can preach to me about film preservation and the importance of preserving art all he wants to, um, because that comes through really effectively here. And I also really love being Ben Kingsley in this. Um, I think he's really remarkable as Melies and just being a man who is understandably depressed about his life's work being lost potentially. 
um, and him trying to conceal that and how that comes about and the role that the other characters play in that. It really makes for a, a fascinating narrative. And it obviously beats out extremely loud and incredibly close for a story about a kid trying to, you know, discover something from his, you know, his lost father. Um, you mentioned the CGI. I love the CGI as well. I like when CGI is used like this, where it's not intended to look realistic, um, but it's more so to try to capture like the fantasy elements, like the imagination of a child. I think it's super effective in that way. And the film looks great as a result um, that, you know, it's got those really nice colors, a lot of gold in there, like very ornate. Um, and it works so well. It's, it's a beautifully shot movie. Of course, you know, it's directed by Scorsese. So of course it is. Um, but I like how he was able to take a different approach and do something that was still just absolutely remarkable. And he won a Golden Globe for Best Director for it. So not that the Globes matter that much, but he did get a little love. So I mean, this movie would have been better if Joe Pesci was in <laughs> You didn't even talk about like Richard Griffith. Griffith? Griffith? Griffith. Yes. Yeah. Is in yeah, it. I believe so. Yeah. And Sasha Barry Cohen and Emily Watson and Francis De La Tour. And I remember when Maddie and I saw this and the bulldog like bites onto Uncle Vernon and she's like, ah, Ripper. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it does have a great cast. Oh, sure. and Helen McCroy is good. And like Chloe oh, Grace yeah. Moretz. Chloe Grace Moretz pushing out that accent, girl. She's like, Papa George. Did you know she Papa like George. She faked the accent so that she could get like in the movie or whatever. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> no, H Helen McCrory is a good call too. I I haven't seen her a ton, but like the stuff that I do see her in, she's one of those that I'm just like I'm really really upset um, that she passed as early as she did uh, because she was very talented and she's great here too. What was it nominated for? I'll tell you, Christian. Yay. <laughs> it had 11 nominations, five of those turning into wins. Five wins for cinematography, art direction, sound editing, sound mixing, not just that, also visual effects. And then we got six of those additional noms for best picture, best director, adapted screenplay, film editing, costume design, and original score. Score is very lovely. I forgot to mention that as well. Great score. Definitely deserved adapted screenplay over the sentence. Oh, the book is very good of this. Like, incredibly good. It's mostly, it's like 90% pictures. I've seen, like, the cover of it. I yeah. don't know if I've ever looked inside of it. It's like very, it, it takes you like an hour to read it because it's 90% pictures. Makes sense. And it's like 500 pages too, kitties. So, <laughs> no, it's like mostly pictures. It's 500 pages. Like 100 pages is dedicated to words. Wow. Look, I'm a teacher. I'm trying to get kids to read, damn it. Oh, I... I don't know. Do they still do those Pizza Hut buckets? Um, in my classroom, come September, we will because I signed up last year. Nice. That's the shit that got me into reading. Right. I'm going to bribe them any way I can. Pick up a book. We didn't have pizza, so I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, you poor thing. Okay, <laughs> go on. Pizza Hut's overrated anyway, but Bucket was another level. 
<laughs> Look like there was a comment coming there. <laughs> all right. Well, that is Hugo. We all obviously highly recommend it. I guess we're for our next film, I guess we're staying in France with a person Brett idolizes. Oh my gosh. What Owen can I say? Wilson. Owen Wilson. Yeah. <laughs> Owen Wilson. Just love the guy. He's a right. <laughs> well, our next film does star Owen Wilson. Why do you remind me um, of Owen Wilson in this movie, though? Why do I feel this is a you thing? Me? Yes, you. Like, I feel like, like if you and Haley were to go to Paris, you would have an existential crisis. True. And be You're like, not wrong. I want to meet famous people. And then, like, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar would show. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, not even that. But if like the family was going to go do something fun, I would be the person that would just be like, you know, I kind of just want to walk around Paris in your jeans. That would be me in your jeans and your boots. Definitely would not dress like Owen Wilson in this movie. I don't understand like why. Anyway, anyway, what's the movie? The movie is Midnight in Paris. (laughs) I thought it was Cars too. (laughs) (laughs) No, that takes place in Japan. (laughs) Car Japan. I don't know how that works. You want to do what in a cup? <laughs> Jeez. I'm like, I've never been in a sniper. Yeah, you are on it. <laughs> I'm awake. So, yes, Midnight in Paris is directed by one Woody Allen. Um, Owen Wilson is the lead character. His name is Gil. He's this Hollywood screenwriter who we are, let's believe, is like really successful. Um, but he really wants to move away from movies and write his first novel. He's in Paris with his fiance, who's played by Rachel McAdams. She is very much against this possible career change, and they are just not fit for each other whatsoever. Um, but while she goes and has fun and um, sleeps with another man at night, he goes and walks around Paris and is somehow transported into um, 1920s era, where a lot of the you know, these really famous writers and artists and musicians and whatnot were going to Paris to rediscover, you know, discover and build their craft. Um, the movie is largely about him, like kind of being very nostalgic for this era um, and, and trying to find ways to live within it. Um, I do really like the movie as much as I didn't want to like it. I think it's quite charming um and mostly really good i do think that alan gets really carried away in the number of historical figures that he feels he needs to put into the movie at times it feels like you know you're just putting this character in there just because they're a name like i can barely remember the salvador dolly scene um some of them are not important whatsoever Uh, but some of them do have an interesting role I do like Corey Stoll as Ernest Hemingway. I think he's really effective in that role. Um, and the supporting cast, Kathy Bates as Gertrude Stein is also really good in this, I think. And Marion Cotillard, um, who plays not a historical figure, um, but kind of more uh, the muse of Pablo Picasso. Um, what I like most about the movie is that it does take on this idea of when someone is so nostalgic for a time period, um, they can get lost in it and re- not realize that, you know, you're thinking of everything that was great about that time period, not all the things that weren't so great. Um, that comes through, especially with between Wilson and Cotillard's character. 
she is very nostalgic for like the 1800s. Um, she cannot see why Gil would have this such fondness for the 1920s. She lives in that era and she doesn't see why it's so great. And I think that's true of kind of everything, you know, when, you know, things can be so difficult and whatnot, the time that you're living in is the way Wilson's character puts it is that it's always going to be unsatisfying. Um, that's just kind of the way it is. You don't, you know, we don't always real, you know, think about the good things or the things about the things that became iconic until years after they've occurred. Um, so I really like that concept. I really like the, how his character comes to that realization. I also took a class my freshman year at KU that was about like American writers in Paris during this time. And I wish I would have paid attention more, paid more attention to the readings I was doing for that class. Cause I do think it is kind of an interesting era. Um, and there's a lot of great things that came about as of it. And so this film is kind of an appreciation of that, but also about like coming to terms with where you're at in the present. So I really enjoyed it. Thoughts. I, yeah, when I watched it in high school, I don't remember what I thought of it. I don't think it had much of an impression on me at all. Um, so, and I've not seen it since then, um, except for until last night, anyway. Um, so I went into it being like, you know, open-minded, you know, regardless of who Woody Allen is, controversially in how what we know about him, I don't think I've seen anything by him that's ever like knocked my socks off. There's something about him I just do not enjoy. <laughs> just the, and I think this movie is a continuation of that for me, I think. Because once I got into my head that I'm like, this feels like like self-inserted fan fiction. Where, um, you know, it's one of those things where the, the he writes a character that's a movie director, okay? So we're automatically you're going to assume he's talking it's a character based on himself it's like whenever Stephen King writes about a writer yeah um and I'm like and I'm like if this movie came out in the 80s he probably starred in himself um, so it's basically like wow all these uppity arty types I just can't stand being around them blah blah you know he has very similar jokes in like Annie Hall and stuff you know I just asshole. I'm trying to find, find a specific word, but anyway, just like being pretentious for pretentious' sake. And he's like, and then the director's like this, like working class American guy, you know, not working class, but you know, he's very down to earth and very like. But a comment from like his, um, from Rachel McAdams' character's uh, dad, just, uh, where she was like, "You're always defending the help," and then like the dad is like calling him like a communist and like making jokes about how the Tea Party <laughs> isn't that bad. And I'm like, oh, "What happened to the Tea Party? <laughs> we just have to move on to worse things." Anyway, um, but. Um, and so when he goes back in time and suddenly all these legends and greats are just like obsessed with him and are, find themselves like drawn to him. I'm just like, is Woody Allen just like, you know, if I went back in time, those people would really appreciate me. And I understand also that the movie is also like anti-nostalgia in that way, but I think he's trying to like have his cake and eat it too. Um, 
so in that regard, I was just like, I think the premise itself, I don't. I think I agree with you, Brett, on the fact that it's just like so many famous people that he's trying to insert that I just think it's like trying to do so much. If it's him like just doing like a writing course with Ernest Hemingway, Gertrude Stein's there, and what's her face that he falls in love with? I forgot her name. Um, I think that would be a better self-contained movie. I think just having so many like names on Wikipedia you can click the little hyperlink on. I'm just like, this is too much. So yeah, and I agree with like Salvador Dali and he's like boom well and I'm like it's just too too coincidental. So that's where I'm like this feels very fan fiction y. Um but over I mean I don't dislike the movie. I'm just like yeah about it. Because I, I like the idea of we're nostalgic for the past, but if you go to the past, they're still nostalgic for the past, no matter where you are. And I like that. Yeah. But yeah. I and I also I guess the present thing where I'm like, dude, your life isn't that bad. <laughs> True. You're in a bad relationship. You're around shitty people on your little vacation here. But you things could be a lot worse for you. So that's what I'm like. I think it'd be more palatable if it was like a right if it really was a regular run of the mill like writer who who like has like a couple books that didn't do great and he's just mm -hmm. like trying to figure out life. I think that would make it a lot more like like nuanced to me. But white men <laughs> would rather go back in time, nineteen twenties <laughs> Paris, than go to therapy. I like this movie. It's, it's, <laughs> it's too smart for me for one thing okay like i don't, I don't know. think it is this is i mean this is at the time when woody allen is like america doesn't like me i'm gonna go across the waters there whatever so this is like you know he's making everything and everything has to be so philosophical and everything just stop like I think the best Woody Allen movies, other than Match Point, because that's like a totally different thing in and of itself, are the ones that are like laugh out loud funny. I didn't laugh out loud in this, but I still enjoyed it. And I think it's because of the cast and the characters are, are, that are in it. Um, yeah, but I don't know. It's good. It's not like one of my favorites of his or anything. And I don't, I don't know. I'm like a weird... <laughs> I'm a Woody Allen fan in terms of like his movies, I guess. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're like texting right now. We're besties. Mm -hmm. um, oh God. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. It's fine. Um, I remember this was shown like at eight o'clock at night and it's only like an hour and a half long but it was the last movie of the night and i'm thinking to myself why are they showing this movie this movie is so mellow that people mm. are gonna fall asleep during this nobody True. did but yeah. it's that like cinematography is like very like yeah, yeah. i could definitely mm -hmm. and then i remember when billy crystal hosted because he always like inserted himself in the movies and he did blackface as sammy davis jr <laughs> 
Yeah. Oh, jeez. Oh, no. Yeah. Did, yes, and it was like a scene oh. where he's in, in like a car, and you know this whole situation. And he opens it up, and there's he goes back in time, and there's Sammy Davis Jr., but it's Billy Crystal as Sammy Davis Jr. It's like, oh, oh I don't remember like, that. Ooh. Yeah. So. Yeah. But also, you know, the Oscars giving this to Woody Allen for a screenplay. It's like, okay. <laughs> That's it. I like it. I think it's, you know, I think we all realized I was a Woody Allen movie fan. Okay. Like Annie Hall, great. Manhattan Murder Mysteries, you want to see like, I think it's better than Annie Hall. It's a, it's a glorified Annie Hall sequel. And it's like a precursor to Only Murders in the Building, which Brett refuses to watch because he hates himself, I guess, and Meryl Streep and all that. The fine cast. Zay and I are like the only two who watch it here. Um, you know, I I watch... So Christian tells me about this show, Jury Duty. And so like I go and I watch it for him and I tell him I watched it and received really? zero response. Zero oh, response. Was, this? was I out of town? I was probably out of town. I don't know. But yeah. Okay, that's cool. It is a good show. Yes, it was a good watch. No, yeah, I another thing. So one of my other criticisms of the movie is I don't like movies where like two people are so like unfit to be together that it makes me wonder why they were ever together in the first place. Like Rachel McAdams' character is really poorly written in this movie. That's um, my biggest. Yeah, I didn't get to that, but I was thinking that I was like, her character makes no sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, she's not the most annoying character because I think most of the characters are annoying to like comedic purposes. But for the situation of this film, I'm like, she, they need something to ground them more. Yeah, yeah. So those scenes, yeah. In those scenes, I was almost like Owen Wilson's character was like, okay, bring on the scenes where like he goes back in time again and he's with like Kathy Bates or something because this this doesn't work as well. But I feel like this was also the year that like Leia Seydoux um, became a little bit more well-known at least like to American audiences because she was in this and she was also in the Mission Impossible movie from this year. So, uh, so this movie did have the original screenplay win. It was also nominated for Best Picture best director and best art direction which is basically paris <laughs> so uh any other thoughts on midnight in paris before going on to our next movie the direction nomination is weird this is true because you could fit in uh what's his face from the the, the Asghar farhadi you want it to be risky Absolutely. if you want it to be if you're nasty <laughs> I mean, between the, I think the Descendants one is even weirder. Honestly. Oh yeah, there's not. This is a really bad year for director nominees. It seems not all of them, of course, but yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of boredom, <laughs> so our next film is a film that I adore. I love it. I loved it when I first saw it, and honestly, I love it more every time I watch it. It's Jack and Jill. <laughs> if you know me, you know, somewhat well, you probably wouldn't be surprised. I love this movie. It is Moneyball. And it is directed by Bennett Miller, who was kind of on a roll 
um, you know, with Capote, Moneyball, Foxcatcher. And then he's just like suddenly disappeared. He hasn't made a movie in almost a decade now. Um, but this one stars Brad Pitt as Billy Bean, which is just like a total baseball name. Of course, his name is Billy Bean. Um, but he is the general manager of the Oakland Athletics in the early 2000s. And this focuses mostly on the 2002 season. So he's in charge of like signing players, building his team for his manager to, to put on the field. And he comes to realization after losing in the postseason for like the second straight year that, you know, we have a, the Oakland days had and still have a very, very small budget to work with compared to other baseball teams in the major leagues, especially the Yankees who they would always lose to. And Bean realizes that, I can't win trying to play this like the Yankees do. Uh, he loses his three best players in the offseason, so it's looking like it's going to be a horrible season. And he realizes he's got to make a change. He meets Peter Brand, who is played by Jonah Hill, and he's basically like a glorified intern for um, the Cleveland baseball team, which has since changed names since this movie came out. Um but he hires him because he is basically an expert in what is now known as sabermetrics. And that's basically using computer data and using advanced statistics to try to determine how valuable baseball players are to a team. So what they do is they go and they say, okay, let's not go um, try to get this player who is going to demand a like $50 million contract. Let's find a player who can give us almost as much and sign him for like $300,000. And so that's where this term Moneyball comes from. They just don't have the money that other teams to do to try to compete. Um, so it follows them. This was so the reason I like this film so much. I am obviously a baseball fan. I do think that being a baseball fan, you could probably argue, is important to liking this film to the fullest um, and enjoying it to the fullest because um, it is pretty dense. So this film does get deep in the weeds with like statistics and whatnot. I think, you know, to me, I don't think that it's one to be watched to get caught up in the statistics, the specifics of it. What you really need to know is that they're doing something new. They're using computers more than using like old scouts who just use the eye test, who watch a player and say, he's going to be the next great guy. Um, they're using data. But more than that, I think where this movie is best is that it's a character study. What this is essentially about is a guy who had a failed baseball career and he has pushed that failure down. He's tried to live with it and he can't get over it and he cannot find satisfaction. You know, in this movie, they make it very clear that what they do here is historic. And it really was like baseball teams do this all the time now. But Billy Bean cannot see it as a victory because he doesn't win a World Series. And to this day, spoiler alert, he never won a World Series. And so to him, you know, he went out and did this great thing that truly did change baseball. He had more influence than he would have ever done if he had just won it all. But to him, it's not enough. And I think the thing that is almost kind of like amazing but also depressing about the movie is that I feel like even winning a World Series would not do it for Billy Bean. He would still be unsatisfied. So I really love the way the film moves. I think it's really well edited. Um, it's unfortunate that Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill have also been revealed to be pretty awful people because I think they're really great here. I know y'all are going to disagree, but I think this is one of Brad Pitt's best performances. I think he perfectly encapsulates what a baseball gene would be. 
I think Jonah Hill is perfect for his role. They work really well off of each other. And I know the film doesn't show most baseball, much baseball, and it's been criticized for that. But I, just as a fan and someone who enjoys that stuff, I enjoy finally seeing a movie that's solely about what happens behind the scenes because I find it really interesting. So like most movies I love, I can go on and on, uh, but I'll let you two trash it before I go into the rest of it. White men <laughs> would rather use online sports statistical mathematics than play fucking baseball. I don't know. I like I like baseball movies that have more baseball to them and less talky talky. Um, I don't know. That's it. I remember seeing this and Maddie said she liked it. And I was like, you're a fucking liar. (laughs) (laughs) I can't, I don't know. I don't understand any of this movie. I don't understand what they're saying. The, the craziest part is there was like a company just like yesterday. They did a money ball situation and they lost a shit ton of money. Okay. (laughs) And I thought like, it's a misleading title for one thing. Cause I thought this was about the porn industry. Moneyball. I don't know. Um, it's not money balls. It's money ball. I also own this movie on DVD because I was like, Brad Pitt. And yeah, that's all I got to say. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a bad movie. It's just aggressively not for me. It's like one of the most aggressively in my face movies. It says, why are you watching me? This is not for you. Because I don't disagree that Brad Pitt is giving a good performance or Jonah Hill. I think they're doing like, that's why I started studying because I was like, I got nothing else going for this. And I just like watched their performances. I was like, they are giving good performances. Because at the end of the day, I was just like, I was just like, I don't care about, like, I'm thinking of it as, like, I don't care about behind-the-scenes things like this. Because to me, it would be like watching, like, financers of a movie, and the movie is about them. And they're like, should we give this money to them? Why should we give money to this movie? And I'm like, I don't care about these people. How they do their business, that's their thing. And I, I'm just so like cynical about business people in general, of how they're like making money for themselves off the backs of people who actually have the talent. To the point where I'm like, I don't, and I'm like, I feel like the movie is aware of that to a degree, that these are people that can't play baseball, deciding the fate of baseball and how baseball is being played. But also the quote that you really like of how can't you be like how are you not how can you not be romantic about baseball I think it's the and I'm like and that's when I was like mm, no it's just I I I think I enjoy that it's definitely like the this is like the eighties right two thousand two. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. It's still an era where these people are clearly, they care about the sport. Which I think makes it a little different from the other thing I'm talking about with, like, business people just coming in and, like, using computers to figure out how to crack the code when they don't care about the subject at hand. So that makes it a little different for me, where it's not totally, like, 
absolutely garbage to me. But it just ends up being like, the movie didn't make me an outsider care. And that's, that. I don't think that's necessarily a fault of the movie. That doesn't make the movie bad, per se, because I don't think it needs to appeal to me. But it doesn't. So that's the outcome. No. I think, see, I have no issue with that. Like, with the reasons you dislike it. Because, yeah, I agree. Like, I... I think it is super intended for like baseball fans who want to know the behind the scenes stuff. It doesn't go in depth with like explaining like the, the more rudimentary stuff that comes before that. And I love that because I'm like, I don't need to know that. But the flip side is that, yeah, it's, it's going to alienate some audiences. Um, I will say I did like seeing how they cut people. Um, and how simple of a process it can be. And the scene where Jonah Hill, where he's like, go in there and tell him. And he's just like, yeah, you're being traded. And it's like, okay. It's like, oh, okay. You think <laughs> yeah. it'd be like of a more grand situation. And you're just like, here's this. You can contact this person. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And See, I, I did like something of it. Well, and I like that. Like, like Billy Bean's an asshole. Like, I, I think, like, the film, like, gets into that. Like, he, as good as a relationship as he has with Jonah Hill, he does not have good relationships in the movie. Um, he has an okay one with his daughter, but you can tell there's a disconnect there. He does not get along with his manager. Um, he doesn't really connect with the players at all. So I I like that. The, I, I just like complex things like that. Where, like, you know, it's it's revealing that like, yes, he is a typical GM. He's kind of an asshole, but I'm still interested in like the movie being about like his, you know, inner grapplings and like why he does what he does. Um, you know, it's not a perfect movie, but my only real like criticism that like bring it down a smidge for me is more like the historical accuracy pieces. Um, it's based on a book that I loved. Obviously, it's a really great book, but the movie kind of leads you on to believe that they were mostly working with like the lowest of the athletes of the major major leagues. One of the players on this team won MVP that year. Uh, another one of the players won the top award for pitchers in major league in the American league that year. Um, but you get what I'm saying. Like the movie makes you believe that that's not the case like they the didn't underdog story baby yeah so that's my main criticism i get that's not the story they're trying to tell it is a little strange to me i also think art how is um maybe criticized a little much kind of made to be the villain but you know he also just has a contentious relationship with billy bean which which was true a lot of people did um and now look at oakland now that i do know <laughs> Right. And this is relevant. And, you know, being left Oakland, he, he left being the GM like three years ago, but it is relevant because the A's are leaving Oakland and they are going to Vegas. And so well, are they officially not officially, but it's, it's oh. going to be very surprising if it doesn't happen. Um, which is sad for Oakland, for the fans there. Um, you know, and that's another case of like, the people even above like the GMs making decisions without considering the fans and sometimes the players as well. But yeah, I also love the ending of this movie. It's, you know, it's one of my favorite movie endings. I'm just going to say it. 
I, it gets me every time. Um, not just like on the emotional level, but I just love how it kind of has that kind of shake cam, but then it zooms in and the song plays and like the ending, how you interpret it can be different. Um, That's like La La Land. It's true. <laughs> it's true. Just absolute like carbon copy. No. Um, two other things or one other thing I did want to mention. Christian, so they were there's a scene where they're talking about like Bill James as the guy who like came up with all this first, and they mentioned that he was a guy, a security guard at like a pork and beans factory. Did you see where that factory was? No. Lawrence, Kansas, baby. Maybe that's why I love it. It's got Lawrence ties as well. So did you see who they played in one of the games? Kansas City Royals, baby. There you go. No, earlier, actually, I forgot my mic was off, and I was making a joke, and then Brett just kept talking over me, and it made me a little <laughs> mad. And then I look up, and I was like, oh, <laughs> he wasn't ignoring You're on mute. No, I was supposed to say that um, this movie is the La La Land for Dad to fall asleep during the ESPN 30 for 30 documentaries. <laughs> you know what 30 for 30 is? Yes, I have a father who's very into sports. Oh. And his name is Brett. <laughs> what was this nominated for? So it didn't get any wins, but it did get six noms, which was pretty good for that year. I would um, say that's impressive. Yeah, I mean, most of these movies got like four or five. So um, it got in for Best Picture, uh, Brad Pitt for Actor, Jonah Hill for Supporting Actor, Adapted Screenplay, Film Editing, and Sound Mixing. That's Moneyball. I want to preface this next film before Zay gets into it. I did not watch it for this podcast Boo. because I lived it. Okay. I took my father to this film in 2011. And I remember he had walked out to go call my mom. And I asked him at the end of the film, did you like it? He said, yes. And then my mom said, your dad called me during this movie. He said he was awful. <laughs> and I thought, oh, okay. I saw it again at the Best Picture Marathon. And this is the one film that got booed. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Zay to introduce our next feature. Go. Anyway, that will be coming off of your final score for not completing the assignment, Christian. Look, I got my notes. You watched Descendant 74 times. Yeah. You couldn't take time for this? This movie's like four hours. Okay. It it's under, it's oh. under two. It might, it's not either. It's like two and a half, isn't it? No, it can't be. It's it's a little over two, I think. I've 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 been in meetings all week. <laughs> There's a super long director's cut out there too. I'm pretty I'm sure. I'm sorry. It's it. it's two hours and nineteen minutes. I apologize. I I enjoyed it, so it didn't go that slowly for me. Hold on a second. I have been planning Brett's wedding. Okay. <laughs> He's Without having, Brett he's having another you. secret. He's having another secret wedding. Um. So anyway, The Tree of Life, directed by Terrence Malick. Who? Never seen him. <laughs> um. 
so basically the story is just of this suburban family, very stereotypical. Um, Brad Pitt apparently plays himself now that we know more. Um, and he's married to uh, Jessica Chastain. They have some kids played by actors who aren't really anybody. No? Am I yep. sorry? Hold up. Uh, one Ty Sheridan, one of them. That's oh, one. Sorry. Yeah. Well, he's not really. <laughs> is he anybody? Like, he with the eyes. Anyway. Ready Player um, One, your favorite film. The movie that may have ruined movies forever. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt. Um, Jessica Chastain. Jessica Chastain's mostly in the background of this. Um, but they're married and they have, is it two, three kids? Three sons? Yeah, three, three sons. sons yeah. Um, of varying ages. And it's just them like growing up in suburban America in 50s? 60s? Mm-hmm. 50s. Um, so, and it's basically the regular portrait of everything seems fine, but it's a little more sinister um, because. Brad Pitt's character is just he's really like alpha male bordering on abusive or maybe abusive depending on where you've seen it um and it's just basically from the kids point of view mostly of how they see their family but it's also Terrence Malick trying to paint a much broader like the most broad picture you could of the universe and basically the the creation of earth and i mean i agree with you christian i don't like this part either but we'll get into that but anyway um the creation of earth and like we see like see different like eras and touchstones of the creation of earth dinosaurs and everything um and like like we get an intro to the family, then it goes into that. Then it's more the, the bulk of the story is about the family again. Um, and then we some and then we see like glimpses of the family in like I don't know if it'd be present day, but definitely further down in the future, especially like the oldest son, um, now played by um, Sean Ben. Yeah. Um, and then it ends and you see everyone's in heaven basically not to spoil it but what do you mean don't look at me like that they're in heaven he hasn't seen it in 11 years (laughs) because I know exactly I know exactly the ending it's her walking right and it's and they're in heaven it's all of them yeah it or some form of afterlife for sure yeah yeah He's I told Christian. you I remember this baby. I mean, Terrence Malick is Christian, though. I mean, I feel like it's his interpretation of heaven. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. So, anyway. I mean, that's... It sounds like nothing for a movie that's over two hours, but there is a lot of montage of, like, the broader things, but also the story itself. I mean, it's not plotty. It's like... At one point, the Brad Pitt's character leaves to go on a business trip. And we see how the family interacts without him being there. 
but also like the things he's like instilled in his children. Um, and how Jessica Chastain, um, yeah, Jessica Chastain, Jessica Chastain's just like, I can't deal with this. And I'm like, rightfully so, hon. Um, but you know, it's the 50s, she couldn't do otherwise. And just, the movie is definitely just like, what happens when you grew up in that household and in a world where like, you're just expected to believe this is the norm. You just deal with it the best you can. And I think it's very potent in that way. And I like that story a lot. I think it's like very good to like, to get like this depth of having a very complicated relationship. I mean, it's very relatable. I've, I haven't seen it in a long time, and it really hit me hard as to how relatable I found it to be. Uh, not to get into any of that, but... A can of soup in a nitroglycerin factory could hit you hard. <laughs> that ain't the friggin' Christmas star, Grizz. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, and I understand Malik's like intentions with like all of like the additions of like the creation of Earth, seeing the dinosaurs, all this footage of nature, just to be like we are a very small cog of such a massive machine to where things are so important to us. But in the larger sense, it's not important. But to have these like little so many important small circles adds up to the large overall broad spectrum of existence. And I will, I get it, but I'm also like, you're, I don't think you need all that to establish that. I don't think having all of that really needs to be there for us to understand that, I don't know, like, It feels too direct of a metaphor, I think. And I think there just needed to be something different that we didn't have to see dinosaurs to understand his bigger message there. Because I think if it ended with everyone in heaven or the afterlife or whatever, I think that would still give a similar punch to me, I think. Because there's like enough scenes where we see like people interacting in like weird montage sort of situations where there's not like active di dialogue happening, just life happening. And so I think if we just got more of that sort of thing, maybe, I don't know. I just think it's just su su ah, superfluous to have all the other things going on. And I think that's a big thing of why people don't like that movie. And I think it's a big reason why people do like the movie. And I just think it's a hat on a hat. So I'll start from there because I differ in that respect. I, I agree that like it's very on the nose, like at least on surface level. And this is just me. I don't have anything to back this up. But I just feel like there's something more there. And I don't exactly know what it is. And I don't even know if Malik knows what it is, but I feel like it's, kind of just his way of expressing that i the way i saw this movie was you've got this stuff where like 
one, you know, Sean Penn, you know, he has these memories. Um, some of them are very fleeting and some of them are very clear, but even though they seem like just typical everyday things, they have a huge impact. Um, there are things that he remembers. And then like you mentioned the stuff with like the creation of the world and life and like the whole universe, it does bring in that, like, these are such big things to him, but they're very small in the grand scheme of things. I just, a lot of it in, um, you know, in that way, it's almost like it's going to be a weird comparison. Give me a second. But I, I feel the same way I feel after watching like 2001. Like I get so swept up in the images and the spirituality of it. And the thought of like, what all is there to this, that beyond the more surface level things, I don't concern myself a whole lot with what it means, but just that there's something more to it. Um, and I think that, you know, that's a similar feeling to life as well that we may not know, but that, you know, the film kind of addresses too. Um, and also just might be because it's just stunning. Uh, it, the, the images are beautiful, but do you disagree? I, I forget. You haven't seen it in 11 years, so never mind. Okay. But in my defense, I was looking at my personal wins for things and I do give this cinematography bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I, I mean, Zay, what do you, cause I, like, I get your point of like, you don't feel like it's necessary, but like, do you agree that it's like kind of awe-inspiring and beautiful to see? I don't think, yeah, no, for sure. I don't think it's worthless. Yeah. I find, and I think it even like became its own separate thing at like an IMAX, like documentary sort of thing, which I would love to see that. Yeah. But I just think in terms of the narrative of this film just doesn't work but i do like i'm not mad at seeing these things yeah yeah and i do i do agree that they're very beautiful i'm just like i just feel like it didn't necessarily belong to this movie yeah but i agree with your take on 2001 because i very once it got to a certain point i was like no this is his 2001 yeah yeah so i don't know it's a movie that like I struggle to talk about a ton beyond that just because I, I can't quite grapple with it, but I kind of love that I can't grapple with it. Um, I also love the, the 50 scenes of growing up and, and Malik and the way he, you know, directs Emmanuel Lubezki, you know, did the cinematography here, the way he kind of works with the cinematographers it doesn't always work. Like I did not like a hidden life. Christian and I saw it together. That's a Malik film that I did not like whatsoever. This bastard um, made me sit through it, even though he wanted to walk out and he said nothing. <laughs> you never know. You never know. Um, but it worked here for me. Like it, it felt like we were truly there, like with the characters and like seeing the world the way they do. And although she's, it, it's a very quiet role. I really like Jessica Chastain here as well. It's so much different than what she was doing in the help, you know, her other best picture nominee. But I think she, she's a really welcome and interesting presence in the film. And it's one like I, I definitely see myself watching multiple times in the future. It will probably be a while, but I could see myself loving it more as time goes on. Maybe I won't like it quite as much, but I do think it's quite an achievement. I disagree. What was it nominated for? <laughs> um, I think well, it's obvious my feelings of this. I mean, 
even without a rewatch, I don't like movies like this. I don't care for Terrence Malick. Now, notice I didn't say I don't like him because I do like Badlands. I have not seen The Thin Red Line in a hot second, so I can't really judge on that. Anything else I've seen post this, I've not cared about, and I've not seen The New World, and I really want to see The New World. So no. I'm indifferent. Let's just say I'm indifferent with the man. Okay. Bad Badlands is great. Oh, Days of Heaven is also very great, too. Forgot about that. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe one day I'll give this um, a shot. But... My last thought before I read the nominees. The funniest part of this movie is seeing Sean Penn in heaven. Because there's no way that man is getting there. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it was nominated for three uh, awards. Nominated for picture, director, and cinematography. Honestly, I do think it's kind of interesting that this got a nomination. Just because it is very niche, I think. Yeah. And it still had many of like the oldie like out of touch people nominating extremely loud and incredibly close and this is also up there yeah that's very interesting to me as well all right well we have one more film i sorry i just asked, are we anything else on tree of life <laughs> all right well if you like movies about trees wait until you see what this one's about <laughs> So this is our last nominee before we get to our Best Picture winner. So Christian, take us away. He was a boy. He was a horse. Can I make it any more obvious? That was good. Thank when you. you sent that, I legitimately laughed. <laughs> okay. Um, the film was War Horse. <laughs> now, okay. <laughs> I don't really have a memory for this one because it went, it went fine at that thing. But my Christmas memory that I had of this, where Zay was like, no, he's going to go see War Horse or whatever. Like, it was sold out during Christmas, okay? I couldn't get in. Um, whatever. Uh, this is directed by Steven Spielberg. Now, in watching it this time, I was like, this does not seem like a Steven Spielberg movie. But also in watching it, and of course, now we have The Fablemans. It's a Steven Spielberg movie via John Ford. Okay. There's a lot of John Ford-esque elements in here. Um, especially thinking back on like how green was my valley, the quiet man, and a lot of the cinematography from the searchers, which I guess was an inspiration for the, some of the shots in here, the last shots in this movie. Are like brilliant. Anyway. Um, so this is a movie about a boy named albert played by jeremy irvine in 1900s england his family are farmers they're poor farmers their farm does not do very well his father buys a horse even though he probably shouldn't because this this land needs to be tilled and planted somehow but albert learns to raise the horse and the horse gets to trust albert to help till the farm even though there's a lot of stuff that still goes on then we flash to it's 1914. Germany has declared war on England. Uh-oh, so it's World War I. And at this time, anybody who owned a horse had to give the horses up because the horses were given then to the army to obviously go to the war, hence the war horse part of it. This then becomes the journey of Joey, the horse, in his many adventures in World War I, which is so awkward to say, but how else are you going to say this? 
he goes from being Tom Hiddleston's horse, which Tom Hiddleston is in this very briefly, and it's a very good role, too. Um, if you read the fun facts about how Spielberg told him to act in this, it's kind of sad. But it makes sense to the character. To uh, going to a French family, to more German soldiers, to being sort of a champion between Germany and England at this time in No Man's Land. And it's almost, it's it's not almost, it's his journey to try and get back to where he came from on this farm. And also the journey of growing up. Um, with Albert because he's of age so he gets to go to war himself I won't tell you what happens there but you get the whole Spielberg side of things so you know it's going to be emotional in some capacity this is an interesting movie because I think I I originally loved it and then I did not like it and in this say this viewing of it I'm like you know what I think I like this I don't love this this is not like this is not a top 10 Spielberg for me as we know he's my man at all it's an, I don't even know if it's like an enjoyable movie because it's not one that I'm going to seek out. It's not one that I'm also going to say, hey, oh yeah, Spielberg, you should start with Wharton. No, you're not going to do that. It's it's there. It's it's nice. Um, but I'm not too interested in it either. You know, I don't know. I like it. It's there. Another thing is this is also based on a book, but it's also based on a play. The play uses a puppet, puppeteers for the horse, and my little head of knowledge back in this time, when I heard this being made a movie, I was thinking to myself, how are they going to do the puppet? Go. No. I it was a very realistic puppet. There you go. Oh, and there's like hardly any CGI in this. That's also cool. The horse might see a nomination for Joey. <laughs> Um, I saw this, oh, this is a really weird backstory for this one. My mom read the book. My mom is a horse girl. Um, and she became very obsessed with this book. And when she found out it would be turned into a movie, she got very excited. I don't think she liked the movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, it's not a very, like, when you think of Spielberg, you think of very like approachable films for the most part. This one's not quite that because I think he's just focused on so many technical aspects. And I, yeah, there's a lot of great shots. And I will say the ending when everything just turns like yellow, I was like, oh shit, that's so good. Oh my God. Because I, once I saw that, I was like, do I rethink everything about this movie that I thought up to this point? Um, I think that's what literally got me. It was the mm -hmm. ending shots of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because the ending is so good. It's like, I'm not going to say my favorite ending out of these nominees, but it's up there. Like, he just really knew how to, like, like swing it out of the park for that last bit. Um, but... As a person that loves animal movies, like unashamedly, and I can really, I guess horses don't follow because I can't think of any horse movie I really love. Um, it's not really about that anyway. It's mostly about World War II, I think, is like the main focus. No? Brett's gonna. <laughs> World War One. World War One. Oh, shit. I did it again. <laughs> this is what happened when I texted Chris. This is like my sixth flub about what. Who's see? Chris? <laughs> anyway, 
There doesn't seem to be Maybe, you know what? Time is something I have difficulty. <laughs> this is like the sixth time in this. There's so many fucking period pieces here. Ugh. Anyway, World War One. Wonder Woman was in the background. Thank you. Now again. Um... She but said, think- we have enough horse meat to kill <laughs> the Satan. Fuck. <laughs> but I do think it's like, first and foremost, a war movie. So I think that's where probably my love for animal movies is not as... I mean, there's some very great sentimentality between different characters and this horse that I think is definitely like the glue of this. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. <laughs> I didn't mean it. And then it came out and I was like, well. <laughs> um, <laughs> but like, it is like the, like what hold it together, I think is the, like the relationship these people have with the horse. Like, I guess, you know, what makes a good war movie is like not the war scenes themselves, but what people were dealing with in that time and then this movie also choosing to focus on what horses were going through in this time like horse things not we don't get to know what the horse thinks but um there's a lot of emotion in those black eyes (laughs) um but yeah it wasn't It's not a bad movie. It's just, I, it's not a movie I'm going to seek out to want to watch. Like I said, it's not a Spielberg y f- feeling movie. I mean, there's a lot of like the emotional side of it. But like I said, it's not, I'm not going to say, you know what, you should watch War Horse. Yeah, I, I think it has some of Spielberg's best tendencies and worst tendencies mixed into the same movie. Um, I commonly see this film criticized as if it's like two and a half hours of straight up mushy sen- sentimentality. And there definitely is a lot of that in here, especially in the bookends. But there's also a lot of bleakness too. Like most of this movie, I do not feel good about humanity. Um and I think that's where it's at its best. Um, I think that's where the role of the horse is particularly useful because we think of horses as, um, you know, these really like, you know, wonderful creatures. Um, and they are brought into this um, as kind of like almost innocent bystanders. Um, they're also symbols of the patriarchy, but that's neither here or there. Um, I just can't <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> but um so yeah I, I feel kind of the same way like this is my least favorite spielberg that i've seen now i haven't seen you know things out there like 1941 and whatnot that are like reviled by some and it's still a three-star movie for me um but it's kind of like on the precipice there i think it's kind of for- forgettable except for some of the shots like you both talked about I agree. The ending is great um, until he gives his dad the the flag thing from when he was in the army. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's spoiler territory, but like you spend this whole time, like part of it, talking about how bad war is, 
And then you end on this note of this like dad reclaiming his status as a war hero or something like that. It's kind of a weird way to end the movie for me. But the the imagery itself is amazing. And there are a lot of shots like that. Like the shot where he is like the horse is actually running through the trenches. Um, I think another great shot in this movie is when uh, a certain character is on the horse on Joey going into battle it cuts away from Joey and then we see Joey running through riders no longer there. That's a great shot. That's like gets to the bleakness of the movie that I like. Um, and you know, Spielberg and James Kimmissey, they know how to shoot a film. Um, I also like that the human characters that Joey encounters are not all part of the same side of the conflict. Um, there's a point where he is with German characters, a point with British, um, a point with French characters. So, I like that it didn't go the opposite route of that. To me, I think the biggest reason this film doesn't work as a whole for me is despite spending the whole movie with him, I never got the feeling that Joey was the main character. To me, it was almost, it felt like we're cycling between different humans as the main character and Joey is on the side. He, he you know, he may be the vessel, but it may be different if I haven't seen films like Ohasar Balthazar or like EO, which I also don't love, but like, I felt like EO was the main character. Like I felt like I could like see the world through his eyes. I never felt that with Joey here. And maybe that's just me, but like, I don't think it ever gets there. Um, Christian is un very unhappy with, with that criticism, but I don't know. The, the human characters are also kind of inconsistent at times. I I'm sorry to pile on this person. Um, but I haven't seen this since it came out in you know 2011, 2012. The two things I remember was that it was beautiful and that I did not like Jeremy Irvine in it. I still don't like Jeremy Irvine in it. Um, I think that character is written and performed the same way as the 13 year old in this movie. And that's kind of an issue. Um, I just find him very annoying um, and kind of overdoing it, but so those scenes are kind of among my least favorite, except for the final shot. So yeah, I don't know. It has a lot of really great aspects and then it has aspects that just don't work. It also is one that's a victim of like, I always find it funny when movies try to find ways to like shoehorn in the title. And this one is like, especially like face palm where they're like, Oh, he's a war horse. War horse. It's like, Oh my God, Steven, <laughs> come on. But it has its moments. It's fine. Because all we got is this and Brokeback Mountain. <laughs> War horse. And then we got a bottle of it up in the cabinet there. <laughs> oh, shoot. Um, this is nominated for six. Wow. Picture, cinematography, deserved. Um, art direction, score. The John Williams score in this is actually very good. Um, I didn't recognize any of it because, as we know, um, on our next podcast, we will dive into Christian's conspiracy that he's been reusing scores for years, folks. Sound editing and sound mixing. And if you don't believe me about the score, Schindler's List, Harry Potter, <laughs> the same score. <laughs> I mean, this is the guy who got nominated like however many times for doing the Star Wars theme and just adding a few notes here and there. So, makes sense. 
hey, if it's if you can get that talent, I wouldn't say I'm like thank you. True. But All right, well, Christian. Christian. Christian was coming out as anti John Williams today, but. <laughs> <laughs> No, more surprising is that Brett was the one that was a lot more harsher and more hoarse than I was today. I'm surprised with that, too. I don't know, but I, I still liked it, technically. I don't know. It's, it's on the fence for me. It's a fine movie. All right, well, Christian, you have our Best Picture winner as well, so take okay. us away. <clears throat> People are going to be like, what the hell is it that they went? Okay, I was doing silent because our next movie is a silent film in 2011. What? How could it be? Indeed, it is The Artist, a film which Maddie and I went to go see New Year's Eve 2011. And I came out of that theater and I said to myself, that's winning Best Picture. And guess what? I was right. Okay. I'm, I'm, that's so Christian. Okay, the film is about a silent film star, George Valentine, um, living in obviously Hollywood. This is 1927. Now, if you know anything about Hollywood history in 1927, what comes out? The jazz singer. What does the jazz singer do? It literally turns Hollywood on its head and revolutionizes sound in film. Um, he is a, one of the biggest silent film stars who wants to keep his stardom, but he doesn't believe that sound is going to be anything more than a fad. He quite literally runs into a woman named Peppy Miller who is trying to make something of herself also. She's one of the girls in the back lot who's going to auditions, doing anything she can to become famous. And like any a star is born type thing, she becomes famous, although she has to really work for it. She starts as a lowly background actor uh, to make herself something. She then runs into George again and... They sort of form a little friendship here and there. She becomes more and more involved in the aspect of filmmaking. Again, becomes something of herself, um, makes a name for herself, all while he is still making silent films, but they're not as popular anymore. When she then transitions herself into talking films that he doesn't, he loses much of his career because that's all he really depended on. Again, he doesn't want change. There's a great moment in this with a lot of sound, um, and it's really his nightmare of things to come as well. I also forgot to say, Jean Dujardin plays George Valentin, and Bernice Bejot plays Pepe Miller. Um, and also, uh, as Al Zimmer, the director of many of his films, is the one and only John Goodman. And, of course, he has a dog named Uggy, uh, who is like the star of the red carpet of... 2012. I remember that dog was everywhere. R.I.P. Uggy. Um, but it basically just tells the story of a man wanting to keep the same in Hollywood, even though Hollywood is going to change for better or for worse. In his case, for worse. Um, and there's a lot of shit happens in his life. And while he's down, Peppy's up and... I don't really want to say what happens because this is a movie that I like to tell people to watch. I don't want you to be afraid of it because it's a silent film from 2010s. I mean, that's kind of cool. 
I thought that was a cool concept anyway. Um, but it's fun. And it's really, I mean, I think it got me into silent films a lot more to say. Because this came out, yeah, when I was a senior. So, I mean, I was obviously familiar with like Charlie Chaplin. But then now I got to explore more silent films. So with this and then on top of that, we have Hugo, which got you into more silent films. So it was a good year for movie making. Um, but yeah, I really like this film a lot. Um, I don't think it's like the best thing ever. I hate that people are like, it's one of the worst best picture winners of the decade. Like what, what criticism though, because it's about Hollywood. It's really good. It has interesting characters. It's an interesting premise that people love. So what's to hate about it? I don't even think it's forgettable because I remember like if I would have not watched this, I still would have remembered everything about this. I've seen this so many times. I remember going to Target the day it was released on DVD and they didn't have it. And I had to go to management and be like, is it in the back? <laughs> oh, there's that. Um, but no, I really like it. So I think it's like top 25-ish best picture winners for me. Um, and it's mostly because of that aspect of old Hollywood and yeah, it's a beautiful film to look at too. They really did a really good job with a lot of this. Which one? I hate? hate it um. so much. No, um, I remember watching it. Maybe it was college, and I it was definitely one of the first silent movies I watched and liked. I my very first one was a Hitchcock movie because I was like I like Alfred Hitchcock let me try a silent movie and it was like the farmer's daughter to this day it's a bad movie not even the lodger you couldn't have started with that I don't listen I didn't know the difference what was good and what was bad um it was just all in this DVD set I had anyway um so yeah I was turned off for silent films for a long time after that and then I saw finally um, maybe I'd started watching like shorts and stuff that I don't remember anyway but then I finally saw The Artist and I was like oh I really love this this was like it was very new to me like I could get the concept pretty like well that I'm like okay it's a silent movie therefore they're not going to talk and we just read what they say I got it it's pretty simple a self-explanatory um, but of course it's like the inner story of Hollywood changing careers, like you said, stars born sort of tale, and just a nice little like romantic story in there. Well, and of course, the movie star Uggy. God, that dog is so good. Oh, that dog. I, I looked up Uggy's uh, filmography up to this point, by the way. In 2005, he was in two movies uh, What's Up, Scarlet, and What's Up, Rockers. He was already being typecast. Um, then he was in Mr. Fix-It. I don't know what that is. But then his breakout role was in Water for Elephants, where he plays Queenie. He was in drag for that one. Um, and then he, then the artist came out. And then after the artist, his first film was The Campaign with Will Ferrell and Zach Galifianakis. <laughs> um, and then I think he went into like a little hiatus for a while and then did Key and Peel. Where he played racist dog, and then his final movie is Holiday Road Trip, 
where he is credited as dog, comma, Augie. <laughs> A-U-G-G-I-E. He also has, he has his paw prints at the Grauman's Theater. Mm-hmm. Like, it's pretty... Shelly Long's there, because that's all she does nowadays. Uggy <laughs> oh. was euthanized at the age of 13 in 2015. I remember that news coming out. It was so sad. What a loss. Thank you. Question. Um, <laughs> but I do like um, they um, went with a very smart idea of getting actors from Hollywood and you know French actors mm-hmm. in there because I'm like that's really smart because like you can appeal to American audience with John Goodman and See, um, when I was watching this I was like how did John Goodman get involved in this because everyone loves John Goodman yeah but I'd be like <laughs> who's this Frenchman I've never heard of also Uggy won the the dog palm or the palm dog <laughs> of course <laughs> which was won by like Fucking Doug from the movie Up. <laughs> <laughs> so like, that's a star. <laughs> um, but yeah, I I like the movie a lot. I I think it only falters in the way that the silent era is so good for visual aesthetics. And weird things they got to do with cameras then because they didn't have to worry about sound. That I wish that there was just some more like visual flair to the movie. Because I think a lot of it, they, it's not necessarily the safe option, but it's not like dazzling. It's not doing something that you wouldn't see another movie of the time being shot. So I just wish it just had a little more of that creativeness in camera movements and whatnot yeah wouldn't it be cool if they like shot the night scenes with the blue tints and like Mm -hmm. did stuff like that That would be cool but yeah because you would think like in that car scene when she's driving to him and everything it'd be sped up a lot more too Mm -hmm. yeah let's see what you get about that which I didn't think it needs to be necessarily. I mean, it's just like the homage to silent film. I mean, it could just be a silent film made now, and that's also fine, but I'm like, mm-hmm. well, since we're already here. Yeah. Because it, it definitely is, it, it's trying to be an homage. And it does some things that work really well. Like, I love the scene where uh, they meet up on the staircase in the studio, and then it pans out and it looks just like the type of set that you would see in a silent film. Um, so like the construction of sets and some of the, like the, the haziness of some of the shots does kind of call back. Um, but yeah, I agree. I, it would have been cool if they would have gone further with that. This movie, I've seen it three or four times. Um, I think I first saw it like almost a year after it won. Cause it took me a while to get to it. And like, I remember I actually bought the DVD. Um, and I haven't seen it in like eight years. I saw that I had locked it on Letterboxd before. It used to be a five-star movie for me. Like top two or three of the year. And it's not that it's like, I still really like it. Like I enjoy it a lot. Um, and I I could watch it, you know, I could rewatch it no problem. 
Um, I just think that like in my previous viewings, cause I'll be honest, like when I was a senior or a junior in high school and I was first learning about this movie and it was winning all these awards, I didn't know about silent films. Um, I didn't realize that was a thing. And like I, at the time I subscribed to like entertainment weekly. Like that was how I learned about like movies that were coming out and things like that. And they were talking about it. And like they had this big article on could a silent film win best picture. And it was really cool. And so for a while, you know, this was just, it was the first silent movie I watched and it was one of my very few like (coughs) references to silent films. And even just like that era of Hollywood in general, classical era, even like the early sound era of Hollywood. I think why it maybe doesn't work quite as well for me now as it used to is that I just, I feel that I filled that void with other things, mostly other silent films. You know, I've just seen a lot more that accomplishes the same things and goes further for me than this does. And I just think like, yeah, it, it's your star is born kind of story. And I think like the narrative and the plot, as much as I enjoy it, you know, I, I watch it, I finish it. I say that was a really good time. And then I kind of move on. Um, even though I, I do love the film. So it's still a really good movie. It just doesn't, it doesn't impact me. It doesn't fill that void for me the way it did eight years ago, 12 years ago, you know, all the other times I watched it, but, um, Jean Dujardin and Bernice Bejo, awesome, like incredible, great performances. Mm-hmm. Very cool that he won the Oscar for this, not being a big name and like being in the silent film and that she got nominated. I totally forgot that she's married to the director. Um, I was watching the clip and like they kiss when he wins best director. So that's kind of cool. Um, I agree with you, Christian. Like I hate hate when people dog this movie for winning best picture um because even though it's not my favorite i wouldn't pick it myself i think it's still a really good best picture winner i think it's still deserving and i think it's more unique than people it's obviously more unique than people give it credit for um the fact that not only this one best picture but once again a box office hit one of the things i remember from the time was that this had a huge like awards bump at the box office and people went to go see it i'm pretty sure this played in Syracuse, Kansas after it won at one point for like a weekend, which is kind of wild, but um, for some reason I didn't see it, but um, so yeah, very cool movie. Definitely isn't worth, you know, the criticism it gets now. Oftentimes I feel like sometimes there's kind of this like revisionist history where people try to pretend that it was just this, you know, schmaltzy movie that won best picture, but it was a very, very critically acclaimed movie. Like a lot of critics and obviously industry folks really loved the movie genuinely. So um, I don't understand why that became such a big narrative, especially with some of the other films that have won best picture since then. Um, But this was interesting because what would win if this didn't, because there's no way, because I feel like a majority of them are wanting tree of life to win. Which is yes. fine, but that's not realistic. Zero chance. And like you're lu- you're lucky the thing got nominated. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah, because otherwise, I think it's like a much worse movie would have won. Yeah. Whatever that would be. I mean, I know Hugo also got five wins, but to me, 
And Hugo would also be a great winner. But to me, Hugo was just the technical one of the year. They liked the technical, they gave it the technical awards. I don't know that it would have won Best Picture had the artist not been there. I honestly think that if Viola would have won, it would have been the help. Yeah, I can see that. Very interesting. Really good film. Very watchable. This won, well, this is nominated for 10, and it won for picture, director, actor for Dujardin, costumes, and original score. An original score in which I have to quote her here, which Kim Novak said that rape had been metaphorically committed in the film's licensed use of Bernard Herrmann's score from Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Which I was like, girl, what? Calm down. (laughs) Hold up now. Like, if it's purchased, then that's a different story here. Um, But yeah, Kim Novak notoriously hates this movie. Uh, What else? Uh, Nominated for Bernice Bejo for Supporting Actress, which is, she's lead. Um, Original screenplay, cinematography, film editing, and art direction. Yes. The artist. Okay, it's getting late. Let's wrap it up. Here we go. Top 10, right? Yes, absolutely. Do you want to go? Yeah, me first. Here we go. At number 98, The Tree of Life. (laughs) Number eight, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. At seven, Money Balls. At six, The Descendants. At number five, Midnight in Paris. Number four, The War Horse. Number three, The Artist. Number two, The Help. And my winner is Scorsese's gangster masterpiece, <laughs> Usual. Now, I'm excited for these two lists coming up. Because <laughs> they snuck in. <laughs> extra nominee, which I thought I watched them all. Oh, except To be uh, fair, you cheated and you deleted the one I put on your list. Oh. <laughs> what was it? Gay porn, and you immediately erased oh. it. <laughs> I put it at your number three. Not love on a leash. No. <laughs> I gotta see that still. Okay. <laughs> well, apparently, I have a number ten. Um, ex- um, extremely bad and incredibly shit. I mean, extremely loud and incredibly close. Um, then we have number nine, Moneyball. Again, not the worst movie ever i'm just not interested eight war horse seven like honestly it's not like an amazing year but the the bad movies are not bad yeah not to say they're bad but like the lower echelon for me is not bad the fact that you rate the white hawaiian man over the war horse he's a war hero (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Seven the descendants, six midnight in Paris, uh, five the help, four the tree of life, three the artist, number two Hugo, and somehow coming in at number one, ten years like twelve years ahead of its time, Sound of Freedom wins. The movie they don't want you to see. <laughs> they didn't want you to see it then. They don't want you to see it now. I just think our our AMC our AMC is so they always have nice cooling air for them transformers, but we wanted to see Sound of Freedom. They turned that AC off. They don't want us to see that movie. 
Okay. So I also have 10 somehow. Uh, my number 10, still the number 10, is extremely loud and incredibly close. Number nine is Warhorse. Number eight, The Descendants. Number seven, Midnight in Paris. Number six, The Help. Number five, The Artist. Number four, Hugo. Number three, The Tree of Life. Number two, Moneyball. And number one, true classic of our times, Jack and Jill. A movie that I have time sometimes listed as my least favorite movie of all time, I will say. All right. So we do have, as always, our overall ranking by Toby. <laughs> There's technically 12 movies. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> I just saw it. All right. So uh, at number 11, we have Extremely. Just Extremely. It wasn't worth mentioning the title again. Number 10, The Descendants. Number 9, we have Midnight in Paris and War Horse. Number eight, Moneyball. Number seven, The Tree of Life. <laughs> Number six, Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. <laughs> Number five, Sound of Freedom. Number four, The Help. Number three, The Artist. Number two, Hugo. And number one, even though it only appeared on one list, somehow is Jack and Jill. What can you say? The numbers don't lie. All right. All right. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, Jack, Jack and Jill is going to take that, that dub and walk out before anybody starts really questioning it. Um, but be sure to tune in next time because, as always, we will be back with more movies. Uh, we are doing six movies this time. Sometimes we decrease a little bit with these longer years, but we each pick two. I'm really excited to dive into those as well as some other movies that came out this year. So be on the lookout for that. And as always, please rate, review, subscribe, uh, wherever you listen, Apple podcasts, especially uh, give us good ratings, please. Um, thanks as always to Joshua Arnoldi for what? That sounded desperate. <laughs> Maybe we're have people been, have people been bullying you on the internet, son. That one, one star review still bothers me. I, I didn't know. Wait, but, I never knew about a one star review. We have a one star, or at least we did at one point. Yeah. Um, yes. Thanks to Joshua Arnoldi for our theme music. Zay, thanks as always for joining us. Any final thoughts from you? Um, I'm going to apologize for that one star review because I guarantee it's an episode I'm on. <laughs> Christian, final thoughts from you. <sighs> we literally have one, two, three, four, five movies about sadness, and then we have Bridesmaids. We're going to be talking about Buckle <laughs> up. We could have done Love on a Leash. Just saying, maybe we'll make a change. All right, well, thanks as always for listening, and be sure to tune in next time. Bye.